tip today in association with Slattery's of Pecan, your main Peugeot dealer for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Good morning. Welcome along to Tip Today. 1800 938 007. That's our free phone number. Won't cost you to make a call. And Ali is looking after the programme today. Coming up on this morning's show, adults swearing and acting aggressively on the sidelines. Financial advice with Francis O'Hanlon. How to choose furniture. For small spaces, Karen Prendergast will be with us. We'll hear from our agony aunt, Phil. And we have legal matters with uh, John Lynch. So all of that and much, much more on the way. You can text and WhatsApp 83 311 You can email tiptoday at tipfm.com. And uh, whatever way you make contact with us, we're always delighted to hear from you. Let's have a look at what's making headlines in your newspapers today, the Irish Times. And they're leading with the story that landlords could pay less tax on rental income in an effort to persuade them to stay in the market under proposals put uh, forward in advance of budget talks intensifying uh, this week. Also on the front page of the Times, Emmett Malone is writing that voluntary groups and charities whose staff have said they will strike from the middle of next month have been asked by the Department of Health to make contingency plans to maintain essential services to the thousands who depend on them for care and support to the Irish Indo. And their lead story, there's been a huge spike in the number of households getting into arrears uh, on their electricity and gas bills. And uh, figures from the regulator regulator showed that uh, 256,000 residential electricity customers, or one in eight households, were in arrears in the three months up to June, this is an increase seemingly of about 55,000 compared with the first three months of the year. The Irish Daily Mail, and uh, they're telling us that whistleblowers and politicians have called for full disclosure into the break-in at the Garda Watchdog's headquarters and uh, Labour Party TD, Tipperary TD, former minister, of course, and former leader of the Labour Party, Alan Kelly, has uh, tabled uh, parliamentary questions this week seeking information from Justice Minister Helen McEntee about that incident. Let's have a look at the Irish Examiner. Interesting one, um, and I wonder what you think about it, but seemingly according to the examiner and according to Elaine Lachlan, um, the Taunashta is pushing to reduce the length of teacher training courses by a year in a bid to lure more people into the profession. So amid a severe shortage of teachers, uh, Michal Martin also wants top-up payments reintroduced for additional teaching qualifications. But that's interesting because I'd love to know how you feel about that. So you would... I mean, if you go down that road, you'd have less qualified teachers, I suppose, uh, teaching our kids. How do you feel about that? And uh, right across the newspapers today, that story of the rescue of two men from a fishing trawler off the coast of Wexford, sparking a major operation into suspected cocaine smuggling. And the Gardaí, the Naval Service and the Air Corps uh, were conducting sweeps uh, off the Wexford coast last night in the bid to establish whether there were drugs in the water near where the vessel was found. So let's look at uh, what's making headlines in your newspapers uh, today. If you want to make comments on any of that, uh, 083 Of course, the other news is that the Fuenagail TD, former Justice Minister Charlie uh, Flanagan, 
has announced that he will not contest the next uh, general uh, election. It's not a surprise to me, um, because we were talking about this in uh, the office, uh, particularly when he was so upfront when answering that uh, question on a grip. Uh, he, I'll just play you this little uh, piece from him. He was asked the the question that so many people are being asked now, what is a woman? And uh, this is what he had to say. Well, I mean, I see a woman uh, as an adult female human being. Um, and, you know, I don't make any apologies for uh, for thinking that or indeed for saying that. Uh, but I don't like a trend in recent times of people fueling um, a culture war uh, in Ireland. And I think we need to ensure that we have an element of balance here. Uh, and I... I, I uh, you know, I perhaps uh, take the view that maybe people of a minority uh, are sometimes more vocally represented in the media uh, than should be the case. Uh, and I get a strong message here from rural people uh, as to uh, the, the place on the political spectrum uh, where Fine Gael, my party, should be uh, and the issues that we should be dealing with. Yeah, it's interesting, as I say, when we uh, heard that reply, uh, we were discussing it in the office and we predicted that it might be the case that he might uh, might not run a next time round, but there you go. In a column in the Irish Times, Jen Hogan, Jen's a great friend of uh, the programme and we have her on many times, but she's written about witnessing aggression on the sidelines and in the stands at sporting events, Now we all know that adults regularly shout abuse at players and referees in particular, both at underage club games and uh, uh, with just uh, a dozen spectators or whatever, but also, of course, at the big matches in stadia uh, attended by thousands of fans. Well, health and family editor for the Irish Times, Damien Cullen, joins me now. Damien, good morning to you. Hi, Fran. How are you? I'm very well indeed, Damien, and thanks for making time for us uh, this morning. Um, you, Following um, the publication of Jen's piece, you tweeted um, an experience you had yourself. Would you tell the listeners about that, Damien? Yeah, well, you see, this came from, um, as you say, Jen, um, Jen and my, uh, myself were talking at the weekend about a, a kind of similar experience at, at two different kind of uh, events. Jen was in the Aviva Stadium, you know, tens of thousands of people and that. And and I was at a match, like you said yourself, uh, you know, there's only a few people. There was more players at the match than there was yes. spectators, you know. And uh, uh, we were talking about the similar things that we heard. And actually, the match I was at, uh, even though there was only a handful of people on the sideline, the referee actually stopped the match because of some of the abuse he was getting. Now, to be fair, it wasn't... I've heard an awful lot worse shouted at referees. We all have. It wasn't. It wasn't on the the, the kind of extreme end, or mm. it wasn't on the terrible end, and that. But it was enough for the referee actually to to stop the match and say, right, I'm not taking this and and over and and several times came over to the same person to tell them that uh, if it didn't stop, they'd be kicked out of the ground. So that was from a parent, I guess, Damien, was it? It was from a parent, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I mean, and, and we've all, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm very conscious that I don't want to sound holier than thou. I'm, I'm uh, not a shrinking violet myself, <laughs> I suppose, when it comes to yes. these matches. And we've all, and the discussion that I had with Jen, I suppose, where she started all this, was we were talking about was there a difference between, you know, uh, a big match at the, you know, in Coke Park or the Aviva or wherever you are. Um, you know, when you hear an awful lot of stuff being shouted and roared at referees and players and stuff like that. And, you know, these kind of underage matches where everybody hears everything that's shouted and stuff like that. And the, 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 I would have, my, my instinct would have said, 
yes, there's a big difference. But actually, the, the thing for Jen was that she was sitting there with her young son at the match and that young lad was still hearing all this abuse and stuff, you know, which isn't right. You know, we can... We can mm. um, I'm not sure what exactly can be done about it, but we can we can start from the premise that, you know, kids like that shouldn't be hearing and shouldn't be exposed to that kind of thing. And Damien, can you remember back to your own day, um, is it much worse now? Because I have this feeling there was always people on the sidelines being abusive. And, I and think, I, yeah, I think you're dead right. I think it was always the way. Uh, I think, you know... 30, 40 years ago when I was playing as a young lad, there was an awful lot of stuff being shouted and yeah. over that from the sidelines and, and things that you were being told to do to the other player and stuff like that, which was absolutely not acceptable. I think, you know, to be fair, things uh, you know, things like that are just not seen as acceptable anymore. I'm yes. not sure. I, I, now, I, I, I would imagine that some people will tell you that it's gotten an awful lot worse, and I know people who will say that even in the last few years it has got worse. But um, but whether it has or not, uh, I don't know. We we since this, you know, we we put up a piece yesterday, and then we looked for people's views, and and Jen has a column in the paper today. Um, I. Obviously, there's been an, an avalanche of people contacting yeah. me, but um, I'll give you one. Actually, a, a coach uh, contacted me yesterday to say that he coaches an underage team. Uh, he was at a match recently where the referee didn't show up. So, as we, you know, as often happens, you know, the, the coach had to step in and referee the match himself. And he said, while he was refereeing the match, one of the parents of his own team started shouting abuse at him. And he said, wow. not only that, but, and I think this is where it gets to the, to, the, to the nuts and bolts of it. He said, not only that, but the son of the parent started repeating some of the stuff that the parent had shouted to him. And he was the coach of this child. My God. And, and this the was child, the child on the, on the pitch playing the game, repeating what the parent was saying from the sidelines. Repeating what My the parent God. was shouting from the sidelines. And he was saying it to his coach, who was just happened to be kind of, you know, landed as, you know, any of us that coach sure. uh, uh, yeah. young people often have, you know, the referee doesn't turn up for whatever reason, you end up refereeing the match yourself and stuff like that. Yeah. But I think, you know, it is the fact that kids, you know, monkey sees, monkey does, that kids repeat, you know, they hear what's been shouted from the sidelines, yeah. they take it in, you know, and, and they See it as acceptable. And, and, and can I ask you, Damien, in your own case, the game that you're making reference to, was that soccer or was it ga? What was it? It was Gaelic football. It was Gaelic football, uh, girls, yeah. underage girls Gaelic football. And to be fair, it wasn't in a, you know, it wasn't a, a no, a, I've heard an awful lot worse. You mm. know what I mean? So, yes. I, so I don't want to... But, but to, it was enough for the refs to, to stop the game and, and point it it's out. It's interesting, yeah. And I mean, uh, I think years past, the referee would have, would have wouldn't have stopped yes, the game like yeah. that. You know, I think referees now are a little bit less. You know, and they're right. They're they're. You know, for years they were supposed to just um, take it. Whatever was said from the sidelines, they were supposed to carry on as if they had never heard it or or whatever. And and now I, I I've seen it mm. a few times where referees now are are telling you know coaches and parents on the sideline to stop. 
And I mean, they're right, really. You know what I mean? It's, 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 and what it's do you make of the argument, Damien, or, or do you agree with it, that rugby, there seems to be more respect in rugby, or do you go along with that? I think, well, I, I, I'm a GA fan, uh, first and foremost, mm. but rugby would certainly be up there, and I've gone to an awful lot of rugby matches, and I have heard an awful lot of abuse shouted from okay. the sidelines of rugby matches. Now, I do think it's a there is a culture thing. I think rugby are uh, players are much more respectable yes. yeah. and respected of of, of referees. Yeah. I'm not sure um, the same applies on the sidelines, but um, you can see them like referees don't tolerate players talking mm. back to them. And I mean, I, I think that has changed a little bit in GA as well over the years that that um, you don't get the same amount uh, players giving abuse to referees I'm sure there's a referee that's going to ring up now in a second and tell you that's actually not right but it, it's only my anecdotal kind of you know uh, views of it you know yeah. but um, I, I mean but I've heard an awful lot on, on the sidelines of you know soccer matches GA matches, rugby matches, it's it's everywhere, unfortunately. Well, it seems to be, because a couple of months ago, based on a piece of correspondence we had from one of our listeners, uh, Damien, uh, we started this discussion, and the stories out there, you know, and the kind of abuse and the level of abuse and how personal it was, I mean, really scared the wits out of me, to be honest, you know? And I mean, you know, if adults are finding it unacceptable, you can imagine... You know how off-putting it is for for children, and that. No, I mean I'm uh, I'm a coach of of underage, and to be honest with you, I think there's an awful lot more respect shown on the sidelines than than um, that has been in you know in the past. Right. I think it has improved at underage level, um, but there's still far too much of it. And unfortunately, the person at an underage match that's shouting abuse can be heard at all corners of the pitch because, you know, there's only a couple of dozen people at the match and, and every player on the field can hear him and the referee can hear everything they say and that kind of thing. So it makes it so much worse. Um, I think, you know, uh, uh, at mm-hmm. other matches, you know, the, the bigger matches, it doesn't have to be at the Aviva, it might be in Semper Stadium this weekend at the Hurling semi-finals or something. There mm-hmm. would be an awful mm-hmm. lot shouted and roared that you know, people might be better off think twice about you know that that you know there's there's children sitting there beside them of and course, uh, and yes. I real and I realise now uh, my my family WhatsApp was was buzzing yesterday with some of the things that I have said at matches. <laughs> uh, so it was coming back to but, haunt you, was it? <laughs> exactly. I, I definitely. I, I think this is definitely what I you know. Yeah. I, I'm trying at least. The, the, you know, the but, only uh, concerns that I well, one of the concerns I would have, and again, it emerged in our discussions a few weeks ago, and I'm wondering, is it reflected in anything you're hearing? Is that some of the abuse might begin to become more racist as our games become more inclusive, and God knows we have some examples of it uh, locally as well. So I, I, I'm just—is that of concern to you, Damien? Yeah, absolutely. Now, when we were myself and Jen were discussing this, we decided to kind of to stay away from that for the simple reason being: I don't think there's a line. Um, you know, if somebody is shouting 
racist abuse or something like that. That's mm. not something where you kind of have a debate about whether, oh, well, you know, it, you know, it wasn't that bad or, you know, that kind of thing. Like, it, it's just completely unacceptable. Yes. There's no yes. line, there's no nothing there whatsoever. So what we were concentrating on with this was more, you know, where is the line? Because somebody can shout that, you know, that should have been a free ref. Mm. You know, yeah. I mean, that's not abuse. You know what I mean? Like, uh, maybe, you know, some referees might, might, you know, if you constantly are shouting that, maybe a referee might, might not like it or something like that. But we were more discussing that there is a line that people cross where they start, you know, questioning the referee's bias and they shout, you know, it starts going into swearing and it starts telling a child that the next time, I mean, we I have heard this so many times where a, a child might do a strong tackle on another child and then you have the parent shouting at the child that has been tackled that the next time the ball comes in, what they do to that other child. I mean, God, that kind of yeah. stuff is, is just, you have to take a step back and kind of think, what am I saying here, you know? Yeah, it's interesting. Well, the piece is in, it's in the Times today, Jamie, and isn't it? Um, it's in print today, yes. Yeah, yes. And, and some of the commentaries, is in, and I'm sorry to laugh, it's just some of it is just so ridiculous as well as everything else, you know. But it, it's a great piece and it's a great conversation piece as well. Damien, thank you so much for your time this morning. We appreciate it. And my best to Jen and all your team there. Thank you. Thank you very thank much. Thank you. Bye-bye, Janelle. That's Damien right. Cullen there. And Damien is health and uh, family editor for the Irish Times. 1800 uh, Tom was on through some Temple Morning. He says, just in relation to Charlie Flanagan's uh, comments on what is a woman, well, I couldn't agree with him more. A woman is indeed an adult human female. If society is mucking around with this fact and believing there is another definition of a woman, then no wonder we are screwed as a country if we're too scared and politically correct to say a man does not have the XX chromosome in every cell like a woman, then we should simply go back to biology class says a Tom there with a very eloquent um, uh, text to us this morning on uh, 083-311-3311. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, he, when he spoke out about it so strongly there, as I say, we, we were guessing that maybe he wasn't for another term in the Doyle. But it's interesting, when other politicians, and I can think of some, were asked the same question, they develop some sort of speech impediment and they begin to hum and haw and all sorts of stuff where that is uh, concerned. Um, all right, we'll take a break. We're back with more and we'll stick with that conversation. Back in just a moment. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Struggling with Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecone, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecone, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie I'm delighted to be joined by my old friend, uh, sports broadcaster and pundit, Murish Walsh. Murish, good morning to you. Good morning, Fran. Once again, Murish, we're talking about this subject. It's making the national papers uh, again. Mm. Is there a level of abuse and aggression that might be deemed acceptable? Yes, there is, unfortunately. Um, I was listening to your previous um, speaker there and um, he said that it's getting a little bit better. Um, I'm not quite sure about that. Um, but certainly within, I think, within the GEA, um, 
there is a level of violence, abuse that's deemed acceptable. Um, and I think you asked the question, was it as bad 30 or 40 years ago? Of course it was. It's just that we didn't have the camera phones and we didn't have all the social media that we have now to highlight it. And I think we're getting to a stage where um, I think we're maybe... I've, yeah, I think I think we're at a crisis point with it, uh, and people might think that's a bit of a um, dramatic on my behalf. But I think that uh, clubs really need to take accountability of this. They know who the perpetrators are. I would say that ninety percent of people that uh, are involved in clubs, be it football, hurling, GA, cricket, whatever it may be, are very honest, decent people and they just, you know, they wouldn't behave like that. But there are a cohort of people who feel that they pay their money um, at the gate so they can go in and behave in a manner that they wouldn't behave in any other walk of society. And I think the clubs need to identify these people and they have to kind of have a zero tolerance and they need to sit down with them and say, listen, look, if this happens again, you're gone, you're out, irrespective of who they are. And would a club have the power to do that, Moorish? Of course they would, Fran. Yeah. Of course they would. I mean, like, I'm in, like, um, I've I've been involved in clubs, you know, Clameltown Soccer Club or the Nile Four Mile Water, Ali McCarvey. Yeah. And, uh, you know, those clubs would have constitutions. And if they don't, they should. And uh, there has to be a code of conduct. Every Mm. club should have a code of conduct. And, you know, I feel sometimes with codes of conduct, they're just um, serving a purpose. You know, it's a, it, it's a box-ticking exercise. It's not really um, implemented. Mm. And I think one of the things as well is that, um, and it drives me nuts, actually, it drives me insane, is that, um, oh, Mirish is a great fella, you know, he's a great secretary, like, you know, so he kind of, that's the trade-off. He goes a bit mad on the sideline, but sure, look, he's a good man, he does loads for the club. Sorry, you know, that's not, that's not good enough. Um... I mean, I, I, I think myself, and I've been saying this for years, that I have a term that someday a, a man or a woman with a wig in a, in a court is going to sort this once and for all. And there's going to be a serious court case um, out of this, be it assault or... Mm. And uh, that's that's what's going to happen. And, it, you know, there has been cases of people uh, being up before the, the court over this. But um, the GEA and... Um, are only paying lip service to it. I'm sorry, you know, I mean, I know that there's a lot of people out there who won't agree with me, but I, I, yes. I don't I don't speak out of both sides of my mouth, Fran, and I do believe that it's something, and I mean, this thing that, that if it's, you know, uh, I heard you talking there, if it's, you know, is it the same in Crow Park on the day of an All-Ireland or in Torless the day of a Monster Fine or uh, in you know, Littleton uh, as a, a junior B football match. It is, yeah, abuse is abuse. And, you know, I mean, if if people's sons or daughters came home from school and announced that, you know, uh, their children were being roared and screamed at the way we were in school, by some teachers, not all, by some, let's be honest, yeah. um, they wouldn't accept it. So why then that evening bring them to a match and then behave in a way that you wouldn't you wouldn't accept yourself if, if it was happening to you. And I mean yeah. I have a brother I mean and I have a brother who's a who's a soccer referee and um uh 
And I suppose maybe that kind of uh, makes me just kind of stand back for two minutes and say, well, would I like my brother Owen to be spoken to like mm. that? And but, is he um, spoken to like that? Marish, oh, it? yeah. I mean, he came in, like, I'll give you an example. He came, I mean, the, the whole country was watching Irish rugby match on Saturday night. Mm. And um, I'm a Manchester United fan, so I rang him at about 10 o'clock, 5 past 10, and he said, look, I'm just in the door from refereeing a soccer match. And last Saturday night, it was a bad night. It was a horrible night, yeah. if you remember. And he said that he was there, he was on his own, he had no linesman, and he said uh, the Wexford team went mad because they felt the, the equaliser was offside. He said, I got dogs abuse. But anyway, look, he said, I'm, I'm drowned, he said. I was going for a shower. I'll talk to you again about it. And I suppose he's had it so long that he's so used to it. But well, but he does. Yeah, he does. He get. But he 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 doesn't. He 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 only tolerates a certain amount of it mm. because he what, what I mean. And I think with some referees, um, the experienced ones, um, they kind of know when to sort of say, "Well, look, that's just." a person just letting off a bit of steam. Exactly, but that's the point I was going to make to you. Where mm. do you draw that, that line? Because as you know, I'm not a sporty, but if I see a fella, for example, if I'm watching a, a match along with my son um, and I see a fella diving, for example, I, I I mean, I don't get too excited about sport, but I want to say a few words of wisdom to him. Yes. Do you, do you, do you know yeah. what I mean? So where, where do you... I don't know. Where's the cutoff? Is it when it becomes personally yeah, I, abusive? I, I in think some it's. Way? I, I, yeah, I think it's language, Fran. I yeah. think it's. I think. I think it's. I think it's language. You know, there's certain words that have come back into uh, common use. I'm not going to start. Obviously, I'm not going to start yeah. saying them on the air. But I think you know, there's words that you know were probably used in the seventies. Yes. And are now have and and were gone out of out of the modern vernacular, and now have come back into uh, use. And I know that in 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 soccer, for example, and I don't want to offend anybody, but if you use the word retard in any shape or form in soccer, it is a straight red card. Okay, well, good, good, yeah. right? Okay, yeah. and that, but that's just one word, for example, that has come back into modern vocabulary. And it's appalling. It's appalling. That that's right? being used now, is it? Wow. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I mean, like I hear, I I hear, I hear it all the time. I hear. I mean, I'm 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 on my way into the gym, and I will hear people saying, you know, God, did you see what that that fella said? Did you hear what that Mary Schwab said on the radio? It's totally R E T E, and the plural of it, you know. Oh, and it's, it's it's yeah. And you see. My 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 thinking on this brand has always been very very strong. The other problem I have, and I'm very strong on this, is now we have the pundit and we have the analysis. Mm. And uh, I would I would have to say one thing about, and not because he's a pal of mine or a pal of yours. It's one thing that Ronan really doesn't go down the road of is analysing the referee's performance on a Monday night. Mm. Um, but you see, during the championship, Brian Gavin, a former inter-county referee, has a column every Monday mm. where he goes through the referees' performances. There's no need for that. It's outrageous, in my book. On Sky Sports every Monday morning, there's a thing called Ref Watch. 
I, 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 I've watched it occasionally, mm. where they go through the referee's performance. Should he have given that decision? Should he have given that decision? That decision went wrong, is wrong. And what that leads to then is, it leads to fellas who are sitting there with nothing better to do with their lives, and they go on Twitter or social media, which I'm not on, as you know, for very yeah. good reason. Yeah. And they start abusing these referees. I mean, Jermaine, there's a, there's a story brewing at the moment. Jermaine Genus, who even your non-sporty listeners would probably know from the one show on BBC, mm. where he tweeted an expletive about a, a penalty that was given in the Arsenal Spurs match on Sunday. And he's, he's in a bit of hot water over it. Because of the tweet, the referee got abuse on the train on the way back. So you see, and what happens is, as your previous um, guest said, monkey see, monkey do. And for me, me, when I was coaching teams, um, I used to always say to my players to kind of be smart or be kind of funny about it. I'd say, the referee is like the Pope, lad. He's infallible. Mm. Never wrong. And if you go out with that mindset, then the game becomes a little bit easier. And I have to pay pay tribute to to a man that who's currently coaching at Clamwell Town's junior team and a, a, a really, really top player in his day, Ramey Condon. And the, the amount of people that said to me, they never heard him once or abuse at a referee or when he was in charge of, of school by teams with me at players. It's a great uh, tribute. He never it's had great to. Tribute. Yeah. yeah, he never had to because he had the respect of the players, and he had, and he, ha- and he had respect for them, and he had respect for authority. Can I just say one thing, Fran? And sure. it's just, it's just, a, it's just a general point. Mm. And I was thinking about this this morning, coming in, is that you know, in, I think in society, it's just if we just take a little bit of a step back, everybody is talking about their rights. And we're all becoming more and more familiar of our rights. And I have no problem with that. And what we're eligible for and that misused word entitled. But we're actually, while we're doing that, we're forgetting about our responsibilities. And that, that brings itself into the, the GA pitch or the soccer pitch or the rugby pitch, wherever it is. When you go into a game, you have a responsibility to the people around you to allow them to watch the game in peace and quiet. You have a responsibility to your to young uh, children that are in the ground, not to be acting, you know, mm. in a in a manner that's not acceptable. That you would, as I say, you wouldn't do out on the street or out in the road. I mean, Fran, like if 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 you go out and have a gig tonight and you have a bad night, mm. you drop a couple of notes or whatever. Yeah. I mean. You don't expect someone from the back of the hall to be screaming up at you, you know, Fran, that's rubbish or whatever. Now, I'm sure people have come up and said to you, this is Fran, I don't think tonight was your best night. You can be certain. And, and yeah. we all accept yeah. that. Yeah. And referees, I mean, if you can approach a referee and you can say to a referee, sorry, look, ref, can I just ask you what, what was that about? And, and I can tell you, 95% of them, 96% of them will talk to you. Mm. They're human beings. They're, yes. they're, they're humans. But if it's put to but, them in, in a respectful Manner, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I've often spoken. I've often spoken to refer. I mean, listen, like your previous guest, I wasn't. A, I'm not a shrinking by it. Look, you 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 gotta feel something today. You know, different from the day you're winning to the day you're losing. Sure. You know, yeah. like it's 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 not it's it's not a tickling competition. You yeah. know what I mean? At the end yeah. of the day, and, and it is passionate, and it is you know, 
pouring on your teammates and, and shouting for your teammates is part of it and, and the players from all sides accept that and they want that and they want an atmosphere in the crowd and they want you to to roar on your team or whatever but they don't want you hurling and abused at, at, at people and I just think that we just need to become a little bit more responsible as parents as supporters as patrons because what's going to happen is we're going to run out of referees very quickly yes because then, I, I can never understand why somebody would be a referee in the first place um, would you answer um, a text in from Mick Moorish he says there is a need for Brian Gavin's uh, ref watch some referees are answerable to nobody while most are brilliant and do a great job there are some referees out there that clearly don't have a clue and um, he said your attitude is shocking and referees um, need uh, an attitude that they're never wrong so basically he's saying that some referees out there deserve to be pulled no. up. Yeah, well, I, you know, thanks to Mick for coming back, um, and I do appreciate it. Referees are answerable, actually. They're answerable to the, the referees, the governing bodies of the referees. They all have, I know in the GA, are my old friend and, and Ronan's friend, Johnny Ryan, retired into county referees and assessor. Uh, John Lonergan is an assessor. Mm. Brian Terrell is an assessor. Uh, Pat McEnany is the boss man of the referees. Barry Kelly is a uh, famous 2014. Um, yeah, they they are they are answerable. They are answerable to their own um, body. Um, I mean, let's mm. put it this way. Um, I can't remember who the referee was <clears throat> in the Munster final this year between Clare and Limerick. He didn't give Clare a free uh, at the end. And uh, he didn't do an inter-county game uh, at the the rest of the year. Now his name escapes. His mm. name escapes. Yes. And kind of on the spot with us. So they are they are answered. I don't I don't believe that Brian Cavan column is needed. I really don't. I I I just. You I think, think it adds adds to the issues that are out there? Yeah. I yeah. I mean, and I take Mick's I take Mick's point that there are. I mean, of course, there are bad referees. Mm. You no, know, there's bad soccer players. There's bad hurlers as well. Of course, uh, yeah. and, but uh, but the more uh, scarce they become, maybe the, the worse the referees will become. If you know what I mean. Yeah, because, I mean, I like I know that in in, in Tipperary in the soccer, one of the problems they have is that they don't have an assessor, but they yes. meet every week or yeah. every two weeks to discuss things. I know my brother in Kilkenny as a soccer referee would have an assessor, and they are and they are answerable. And I mean, I was there one day when my brother was refereeing the match, and the assessor said to him, "Look." you got a couple of things wrong there. And my brother would say to me, if I was at the game, do you think I got that call right? And I, and I, I sometimes I've said to him, you know what, I, I don't think it was. And like the, the, the thing that brings me on to this is that, you know, we've got so much uh, exposure on TV and so much analysis that it's regurgitated. And like, you, you know, you, and what happens is, Something happens on between Tip and Limerick on the television, and then the following night there's an under fourteen game down in the field, and they're applying the same standards. You know, do you know what I'm trying to say? I they're do. not allowing they're not allowing children to make mistakes. They're not of allowing course. a young referee who's starting out to make mistakes. And what happens is he gets intimidated, he gets upset, he goes home, takes off the whistle, he throws it in the drawer, and he says, "Hey, I'm not doing that again." Right. Because, yeah. look, Frank. I, I I just I just feel that nobody nobody deserves to be roared and screamed at in an abusive manner anywhere. If at home, behind closed doors, 
out in the street, in a field, wherever. I mean, we all have to let off steam. Sport, as my good friend out in our film, McDonnelly, once said to me, it's a necessary triviality. Yes. You know, we need it. Yes. It's absolutely it's a lovely. It's a lovely life. description, though, isn't it? It is, but it's trivial. It's only a game at the end of the day. And, I mean, the one beauty... I mean, I am not... I, I, I know as much about rugby uh, as I do about playing the piano, right? right. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a big rugby fan. Yeah. I'm not. It's just There's no political reason for that. But isn't it amazing what it can do to lift the spirits of people? And you see the Irish rugby team doing so well, it lifts the spirits of people and you can get into the base of Iron Call and Zombie, which I think are just the moot point. I think that it's a nonsense to be in debate. Mm. I don't care what people think. They're happy. Yeah, They're happy. It brings joy. And, and it brings people together, which is great too. Mourish. That's the most important thing. Mourish, it's all, always a pleasure. And uh, thank you so much for taking time out for us, Mourish. No thank you. Thank you. Good morning to you. And that's Bye. my good friend, uh, Mourish Walsh, there. Uh, Lisa called in to Ali to say that he is an active referee in the county. He has been abused many times and he has even been threatened. He finds that younger age groups are the worst. Under 11, under 13, he says Mourish is right. The GAA need to act on this before somebody is seriously hurt or even killed on the pitch. Uh, the caller feels we are getting to that stage if something is not done. All right, we'll take a break. We'll continue this conversation in just a moment's time. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie if it matters to you, it matters to us. Call Tip Today on 1-800-938-007. Uh, one of our listeners says, Hi, friend. All the money the council are wasting in cashel, putting in wide curbs and footpaths and grass on one side of the care road, cycle lane on the other. Meanwhile, over 200 Ukrainians are walking around Dundrum in the dark and no footpath. Uh, they walk on the road and the ditch, and then the council tell us about road safety. Could you please ask the next politician that's on about this is Joe. Joe, I am weary. I am weary making that point because I live pretty close to that. I pass it in the mornings. I pass it in the evenings. I pass it late, late at night there. And it is an accident, if not accidents, waiting to happen there as we approach uh, the winter. Something, something has to be done uh, about it. It is a very, very serious issue. I mean, we bring in people put it out there that we're looking after these people and we are to a great extent but then we put them out on the roads to walk from Dundrum House up to the village of Dundrum and with the trees there and stuff it's dark at the best of times and uh, no footpath there's footpaths for the last what is it 100 yards or so, something on one side but like really it needs to be sorted it really does but thank you for that another Joe joins me in line now Joe good morning to you good morning and good to talk to you today um Adults swearing, acting aggressively on the sidelines. Joe, what's, what's your experience, Ben? Um, limited, uh, purely with the hurling, really. That's all the, the sport that uh, I've been attending recently. Um, uh, mainly with the uh, junior hurlers, like the under-13s, etc. Yeah. Um, I have experienced it. There was uh, I was attending a match where, um, towards the end of the game, there was a fight the far side of the... The pitch broke out amongst the players, which the referee was dealing with, and parents, mainly mothers of 
the um, children involved were off their seat and shouting abuse and screaming across the pitch. Fortunately, officials got them stopped and sent back to their seats. Um, but if, if they had arrived on the scene as well, it would have only exaggerated, exacerbated the situation. Um, mothers, you're telling me, Joe. Sorry? Mothers. Mothers, yeah. And oh. other kids following them as well across the pitch. Um, it was wow. dealt with very quick, and I think this is what has, has to happen. The, these situations need dealing with at the grassroots of any sport. Um, like one of your previous um, listeners said, uh, with the social media and the mobile phones and everything, mm. everything is so much more public now. Um, it will have always happened in sport, but it's so much more public that it's basically teaching the younger generation that's coming into it that it's acceptable. So it wants dealing with now in the grassroots of sports that these sort of things can't happen. And how would you how would you deal with it, uh, Joe? Um, Marish was making the point that you know in the, in the club's constitution that maybe the rules and regulations should be there and then policed and enforced in some way. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm not involved enough with hurling yet to to know how how it could be dealt with like that. But um, I know from our own coaches and from my my son. Um, who on one occasion uh, had been calling names or a bit of abuse um, to another player, he was very quickly told to behave himself. By you? Uh, no, by the coach. By the coach, OK, right. You know, if I'd heard it, I would have done as well. Yeah. But, you know, I've seen... I, I've been at a match where... Um, an under eleven match where when the game had finished and they were waiting to do the hurl clack, that one of the opposition players hit another player with his hurl and hit him hard. Um, now, that young lad was made to come and apologise before the hurl clack went at the end of the game, and that was the right way to deal with it. What he had done was wrong, and he, he, he was shown up to be wrong. Now, his mother was not at all happy, and she gave a bit of abuse to the coaches that had made it happen. Wow. Uh, made him apologise, but but he was made to apologise, and that's what should happen. Yeah, you, you know. S- you see, if you were to transfer that incident onto our streets, for example, Joe, I mean, if I brandished a stick and assaulted another person, I'd end up in prison for that. I mean, that would be grievous bodily harm. You know. Now put it back on the pitch. We seem to have a a tolerance for this kind of thing. Well, there wasn't tolerance shown there. He was made to apologise. Sure, but but at, uh, but at times, and you even mentioned that his mother took exception to him being chastised for this. Yeah, I mean that. <laughs> I can't. Uh, I can't comment on how why she felt that because um, I didn't know her. You know. Yes, of um, course. Yeah. But, but the, the other kids. What I'm trying to get across is that the other kids will have learned from seeing him made to come and apologise. Yeah, it's inter- but, I mean, we have one of our listeners just on to us this, this second. It's just come up on my screen here. And I'm sure it's meant to be tongue-in-cheek, but I wonder if it sort of reflects the thinking out there. It says, what good is a game of hurling, Fran, without a bit of a row? Now, I'm sure that's meant to be tongue-in-cheek, but there is an element of that in the thinking about it. You know, it has to be aggressive. It has to be sort of masculine in some way, you know? Yeah, I mean, hurling 
hurling by its nature is an aggressive sport. Um, and, and it's very, very fast. And going back to the referee situation, I mean, hurling is so fast from one end of the pitch to the other, yeah. it actually makes rugby look slow. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, for, for a referee to be expected to get it right all the time, it's just not possible, in my eye. Mm. Um, now, whether the, the officials on the sideline should be able to play a bit more of a part, so they might see something that the referee doesn't. But would that would that then slow the game down by it being continually interrupted and spoil the game? That's uh, that, that's a point that that could be uh, a fact, like you know. Um, all right, Joe. Well, you, you make some very interesting points there, and thank you. We appreciate you coming on with me this morning, Joe. Thank you very much indeed uh, for that. Um, on a slightly different tack, we've been chatting about the uh, protest outside of Leinster House, and we've been hearing all sorts of uh, views on it. And I spoke to the editor of Gripped, uh, the um, media platform, and um, again, we got some reactions to that. But Sean was in touch, and he joins me now. Sean, good morning to you. Good morning, good morning. You, you're making an interesting point that hasn't been touched on. You're saying the politicians, you know, okay, well, there's a lot of grief from various different aspects of the community. You're saying the fishing communities, um, they hate politicians, you're saying to me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Politicians uh, facing politics in this country and fishing communities, I would say, is is, is, is single digits confidence. Um, we're told is that because that they're, they're seen to have sold us out in some way? Sold Exactly, that is the word, since 1974. And we're told we've done a deal in 1974. Well, I don't think there's any other industry you can do a deal and you're not happy with and generation after generation has to put up with us. Why can't we renegotiate this deal? And from the get-go, there was always question marks about the deal that we've done like what actually went on when this was done to sell off one of our greatest natural industries and like what we've seen since 1974 is gradual destruction of the industry Now Sean, for those of us who mightn't have a great memory about what happened there um, in the initial stages of our joining the EEC back in the 70s, what what exactly what exactly happened at that point? it, it appears like that what we're told here is that there was a deal done for agriculture trade for fishing mm-hmm. And unfortunately, our politicians didn't realise the potential of the fishing industry. And I don't think it's really true to say that that was the deal was done, but I think they didn't know what they were actually dealing with. You know, the, 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 the potential of the fishing industry, if it had been well managed, and, and uh, the significance of it, like you had dozens of dozens of villages, uh, tens of boats supplying mm-hmm. hundreds and thousands of men, and then you had you had processing, you had all the ancillary industries along with it. And like since then, we've seen quotas cut, we've seen restrictions, we've seen closures. And like we know fisheries is in trouble in an awful lot of the world, but there are examples, you know, particularly North America, New Zealand, uh, Australia, where fisheries are well managed for the benefit of the people. And like, I could analogy it with, with a good Holland county, say like Tipperary. If you don't win in All Ireland in ten years, there's something seriously wrong. You change the manager or change the structure. We've had the same departments running fisheries for generations, and it's been mm. one 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 way down downhill. I like, you know, unfortunate thing is people have got to the end of their tether with politics. We expect them to tell us lies. 
we expect them to break promises and we expect them to go missing after elections. Well, I think it's about time now that mm. the people enter into a contract with politicians, a simple contract where they don't tell lies. If they tell lies, that they, they make, uh, make a sworn uh, agreement with the people that they'll resign. You know, because if you go in there and we're going to, like we've seen it with the fishery, or oh, get us elected, we're going to turn the job mm. around, we're going to do this. It doesn't happen. It but never could, happens. Could I put it to you, to you, Sean, and I'm old enough to remember the great, and maybe you remember him or have heard, read about him, the great Joey Murren, who was yes. the iconic leader of the fishing industry, and boy, yes. did he give politicians hell at that time. I mean, has anybody emerged similar to that from the industry who would fight their corner, you know? Well, well, I'd put it this way, Fran. Some years ago, I was involved in, uh, say, fisheries, with issues with fisheries. Yes. And a person in the Department of Marine offered me a position, not a very important position, but a, a position on a board. And he said to me, Sean, he said, you're well capable, he said, you're able to talk. But he said, you're on the outside, excuse the expression, pissing in. He said, you need to be on the inside, pissing out. Right. And... That seems to be the thing. If you raise your head, the next thing you're appointed to, some some organisation where you're on the payroll and you keep your mouth shut. So you're brought into uh, the fold. You're brought wow. into the fold. And I see the same thing with the farming, that generations there, uh, IFA leaders particularly, the next thing they wind up in politics. And you just wonder to yourself, because it's happened to you, where did it cross the line? And unfortunately, like our communities are dying you know, our rural communities are dying. Like, we have less and less farmers, we have less and less fishermen at a time where there's more demand for fish and for food than ever. And, like, it, it, is, it is a dangerous situation because, like, we're always told in this country people died for the vote. But you have to question, if your vote is actually counterproductive, why are you actually doing it? If these people can't keep a promise, a basic promise, if you or I go into court today, Fran, First thing we do, we swear on the Bible to tell the truth, the whole truth, yes. nothing but the truth, so help me God. These people don't make yeah. any... And, and I'm almost out of time, Sean, but but do you take into account that, OK, I, as a member of Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, I can make certain promises. Then yeah. the electorate speaks and we end up in some sort of a, a mixture, some sort of a coalition. And then, yeah. you know, I mean, everybody's interest has to be taken into account and it might dilute what it is that I wanted to do for you, if you know what I mean, if that's not a wordy way of putting it. But you you take my point. I do take your point, but at the same time, you must go back to the people and say, look, you know, you must have a system where where people have confidence in you, where you don't expect politicians to philander, tell lies, break promises. Year after year, you have to have some little bit of honourable honourability in the the game. Well, well, you were honourable. You didn't take the gig. Did you? <laughs> I didn't take the gig and I paid for it. Yeah, I didn't take the gig, no. And unfortunately, that is the system. You know, I mean, yeah. uh, people that do put their head above the parish, but if they can be picked off, they'll be picked All off. Right. You know, and I don't mean to cut you short because this is a conversation I'd love to continue at some point. Sean, could we talk to you about this again? Because I'd love to have more time with it. Would that be okay? No no problem, Frank. All right. No problem. Pre- appreciate your, your time Thank this you morning, Sean. Much. Thank you very much indeed. News and information is coming up. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Tip today 
with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. Your Peugeot car or van might benefit from a free software upgrade. For more information and to find out if this applies to your vehicle, call the lads in Slattery's Garage, puck on on 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Gabriela Marga Pat, and uh, welcome back to the second hour of uh, Tip Today. Still getting a huge amount of correspondence in um, where aggression and abuse at games are concerned. And uh, thank you very much indeed for that. You're mentioning specific games, so I have to be rather careful, as you can imagine, about uh, doing that. But thanks for the information. And it's something we will be going back to. I promise you we will be going back to it, certainly on our panel uh, this week. All right, then, it's time for financial advice. and glad to be joined, as usual, by Frances O'Hanlon of FOH uh, Financial Limited. Good morning to you, Frances. Hi, and good to see you indeed. Um, well, we start with a question. Uh, with a person who wants to be a carer, would, would that affect their pension, which is non Contributory. Okay, so we're back to the the social welfare questions, which look it feeds into finance, yes. and that's it. I have no problem. So what we need to remember here is the non-contributory pension is means tested. So we need to remember that. Yes. So you are allowed to earn two hundred euros a week, have twenty k in your own name, and after that, anything else beyond that is included in an assessment as to whether you get it. But the carers allowance is not included in that assessment. So park that for a minute. Okay. okay? Then we get on to the carers allowance which is also means tested but subject to terms and conditions also so uh, but any payment from the department of social protection is not included in the means test so that's back to the non-contributory pension so now let's roll and when it comes to the means testing the first 50,000 of your capital uh, for the the carers allowance is not included Let's roll on then. But, 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 right? Mm. If you are in one of the following situations, you may qualify for half-rate carers allowance. And this is important because I think it feeds into the question. Yes. Or if you're already getting carers allowance, but you also meet the qualifying criteria for another social welfare payment, if you satisfy the conditions for carers allowance it will be awarded at 50% of the rate that would apply if you were not getting the other payment. So the the, the short answer is um, yes to this person. If you're on the non-contributory pension, you can still get the non-contributory pension, but I would suggest you'll only get half carer's allowance. Okay, right. So again case-by-case case basis. How many times have we said that when it comes to social welfare? It would seem to me from what I have read and how I interpret it that this person's non-contributory pension, let's assume they're getting the full rate of their non-contributory pension, that they, if they qualify for a carer's allowance, as they're getting the non-contributory pension, I'm going to assume at full rate, okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then they will be awarded half carer's allowance if they qualify for the carer's allowance. Right, but, uh, you know, I, I don't think I'm playing with the full deck today, but what strikes me is if you set yourself up as a carer, for example, mm. and then took on board the non-contributing uh, pension, which allows you to, to, to be the yeah, carer, and would again, you not get the full? No. No. Um, again, it's remember, I suppose, what it's saying here is, whilst it says that if you're getting the carer's allowance, that Department of Social Protection is not included in the means test, it doesn't mean that you can get two payments okay. at full, That's at what full I tilt. That's what I mean. You know, so okay. again, it might be that you're only entitled to half. Now, remember, 
it might be that there's a situation where somebody is getting the non-contributory pension, they could be looking after two Yes, of course, people. yes. Okay. You know, so again, they, it might be that they're awarded 50%. What shouts at me here is, you know, our carers... <laughs> brilliant really uh, you know yeah. when you consider I know there's and we've mentioned this before about striving to help people that are caring to give them uh, award them credits for their eventual state pension um, if they're caring for somebody pre-retirement but you know the work the carers do I, know, I, I don't know incredible it now, it looks as if there will be a nod towards them in the upcoming budget but and, that's all it and, will be well I hope not. it's a decent nod. Yeah, that's all yeah. I say. Any, anyway, we we all do. Yeah. Um, another question: What is the best way for grandparents to contribute in the long term to kids going to college, to grandchildren going to college? Okay, mm-hmm. so I'm going to assume grandparents is the plural here. So I'm assuming that there's grandmother and grandfather. Mm. So the best way to do this is under the small gift exemption, and we've mentioned this many times before. Yes. So the small gift exemption allows. Um, you to give €3,000 per grandchild. So if you have grandparents, plural, two, they could technically give €6,000 a year, okay, to that grandchild. Now, they might want to give €6,000. It's no mean amount. So it might be that they want to give 3000 between them or it might be that they want to give €1,000 between them. That's fine. One thing I would say here is please make sure that this is given to the child. I saw a situation lately where grandparents were doing this, but they were giving it all to their daughter. Right. Okay, so the the daughter was getting a, a small gift under the small gift exemption from her parents, and they were also giving the ch- the daughter oh, the s- the son's right gift. That's all. Perce- if if revenue looked at that, they could perceive oh. She's getting twelve thousand a year from her parents, so the other six thousand could technically be deemed as a taxable gift. Wow. So just be careful. How do you set that up? Then? I would say, look, you need the simplest way is that the grandparents are giving it into the child's bank account, the child's post office account, the child's credit union account, or if they're dealing with a financial advisor, it might be that this is being paid into a long-term savings plan, an equity-based savings plan, which kind of brings us back to what we discussed last month about, you know, longer-term return on equities. Grandparents can set up an equity-based savings plan and then basically the debit on a monthly basis or an annual basis, say €6,000 or €500 a month under the small gift exemption can go in to feed the savings plan but is debited from the grandparents' account. But the, the policy, if the child is under 18, the policy is in, basically in trust. So it's deemed that every year the gift has been executed. Much cleaner way, but back to the, the, the I suppose, the simple matter in hand. Six, if we're talking about grandparents, plural, 6,000 a year is the max they can gift. If it's one grandparent, it's 3,000. So anything below that, because it may be that grandparents, you know, haven't got that amount to give, but they might want to give 500 euros mm. a year or 1,000 euros. So there's many ways to do it. But if you're looking at the revenue maxes, it's 3,000, okay? And if it's a thing that is plural, it's 6,000. There's also another way. There's a thing called a Section 73 gift policy, okay? okay? Where basically uh, the grandparents save an amount every month for a period of eight years, okay? And then they give a gift at the end of the eight years 
to the grandchild. Okay, and the idea is that the Section 73 policy covers off the tax that is due. Probably not, you know, probably complicating this a little bit, but it's just another string. It's another Mm. tool in the kit bag, shall we say. And they save over those eight years into a particular... Yeah, into it has to be a Section 73 savings plan. Okay, Okay. so the idea is that the amount that they're saving per month is to target the tax that will trigger when they make the gift. So let's say some lucky grandchild is going to get 100,000 from a grandparent. And the let's say that the capital acquisitions tax um, is going to be, or the gift tax is going to be 33,000 because it's at 33%. So the grandparents can save the amount of the 33,000 over eight years they can then, after year eight, they can gift the 100000 to the grandchild. They have the 33000 accumulated to pay revenue. Revenue don't deem it as a gift of 133000 That's That's the idea of it. They only deem it as a gift of 100000 Interesting. If you were to make the choice between both those options that you described. I, I mean, look... <laughs> I'm laughing here. Yeah. Um, you know, I've never been in this quadri of course, grandparents of, course, but, of old, but, but got, you know, diff- different times, yeah. right? But um, I would say the small gift exemption, I think, is more yeah. in tune with people's means. There's very strict points around the Section 73 policy um, in that you have to execute the gift within one, one year. Um, I, I would say for simplicity and back to the question here, I think... The small gift exemption is a fantastic way of grandparents, parents, anybody gifting somebody money, but doing so based on their means per annum. And it can be up to 3,000. It can be mm. 6,000. And per- is there any difference in with where the gift is concerned as opposed to something you might gain from a will when somebody passes away. So that's different. So um, That's treated differently, is it? it, Well, you see, if you do it under the small gift exemption, then you keep your threshold intact. So eventually, if the grandparents are bequeathing money to their grandchild, because they gave money under the small gift exemption, it doesn't count. It's not offset against the eventual, um, I suppose, money that they've received through inheritance. Okay, so that's why the small gift exemption is a really, really good way of Very good. of dealing with that. So yeah. I, my preference would be in this instance, and I think what this person was saying is, what's the best way for grandparents to give? I've kind of gone around the world for sport, but I just want to show there's other options. Mm. What people need is advice, but I would say in this instance, the small gift exemption is a fantastic way, and. Lucky grandchild. Lucky grandchild, indeed. Yeah. Um, you're always on about our credit rating and mm. how important it is to protected Francis. But what's been happening with the, the central bank recently? Do you, do you want to just go through briefly what did Yeah, so basically, I'm calling this central bank mm. boo-boo, right? Um, we're always... It's being very gentle. To yes, it, yes, absolutely. Yeah. We're always ranting on about your credit, central credit register, how important yes. your credit rating is. And um, this just happened over the summer. Right, And a lot of people may not be aware and it mightn't apply to them, but a lot of people it does. Um, So just to tell you what happened here, basically the central bank systems, the central credit register failed in that basically when a bank looks at you, they can look at a five-year picture. And in the month of June, sorry, in the month of May of 2023, when 
the view was being taken by a bank, somebody goes in, they're applying for a mortgage, they were able to see three months more than they should have done. Of your credit history. Of your credit history. Now you might be saying, yeah, really? What Mm. odds does that make? It makes a lot. Um, If you're a person that had issues of past, Mm. right? And I, we have people where we're saying, okay, you can't apply for this until the 1st of November 2023 because you had an issue which is going to show in your credit rating up to September 23. Right. So we're going to leave clear water of a month. We're going to apply for this facility in November, the 1st of November 2023 because, and before we do what we're going to check your credit rating just to make sure, feeding into this point, mm that you're, you're clear. So what happened was, in this instance, people that should have been clear, there was three more months showing. So those three more, more months could have been still showing mm. their adverse credit rating. So if somebody applied for a mortgage or a loan within could, that time then and had that little thing, yeah. on the, they, they'd be they denied. They could be declined, absolutely. Yeah. So the central bank, when it was brought to their attention, they said, oh, sorry about that. They corrected it immediately, but... You know, I suppose just to be clear here, in case, you know, people, you know, say, oh, yeah, credit rating, what does it matter? There was approximately 476,000 inquiries made by lenders for the period 1st of June to the 7th of August 23, right? So of that, there was about 20,500 borrowers affected by this error. So this is no mean amount. These are people, people that yeah. had glitches in their credit rating. Now, if somebody has an ongoing issue and it's still not sorted, yeah. you know, that's that's still going to show. But these were people where there was repayment difficulties potentially showing from May, June or July 2018, which should not have shown on their rating. So, long story short... Um, it's, you know, it's ongoing. The, the central bank corrected it immediately. But as to how it affects those borrowers and how they're going to be dealt with, um, their credit rating has been corrected. The correct um, credit is showing as to how the effect on them, because possibly they've been declined a mortgage, declined a car loan, declined an overdraft, whatever it be. So that's going to have to be dealt with by the central bank. Okay. How will it be dealt with? Well, the first thing they had to do was correct the error which they've done. Now, look, stuff happens, Fran, and but it's in it, the impact of this on those twenty thousand five hundred people could be extreme. Like it could be the difference between them losing yes. um, a house, maybe that they were trying to buy, or tr- standing in the forecourt of a garage trying to buy a car. So, uh, you know, there's it, there's mm. lots of knock-on issues. So they they no, corrected no matter- the records. Yes, but, but e- even by doing that, uh, Francis, the, just the notion that you've been denied and that's documented somewhere, well, will I that not come against I, you I anyway? think that will have to be reversed. So I would say that the central bank will have to go to the individual banks that presented those inquiries and ask them to revoke that, okay. say, look, this okay. was our error. They'll have to correct that. There's no doubt in my mind. It cannot be an adverse outcome for those 20,500 right. people. It's just that... What's missed because of it? You know, I I don't know. These people will have to be dealt with on an individual basis. We are forever talking about this. Please, if you're in any doubt, you should do your... You can do a central credit register check once a year, Mm. free. Mm. Check your credit rating. You know, 
people go to the dentist, the doctor, or whatever it be, have mm. a look at your financial health, which is the central yes. credit register once a year. Some people it doesn't apply to. You know, they might say, well, I'm retired. I've no interest in borrowing. You know, I would still say just keep an eye on, yes. your, cred- on your credit And just rating. to remind people, something that you would see as relatively simple could affect your Absolutely. credit Absolutely. I mean, we've seen people that had a credit card back when they were, you know, maybe end of student days where they missed payments. They didn't make the minimum 5% payment. And then all of a sudden they're knocked out for five years. You know, and they're normally these people are totally oblivious. So what we do as advisors, we say to people, go and get a uh, mm. CCR check if we've any doubt but sometimes mm. people saying oh no I, I never had a car I never had a loan they forget about it yes of course and yes. they forget I about would imagine the, the credit card is something that comes up quite a lot oh absolutely yeah. so remember now you know it was funny I had somebody saying to me lately oh, well I only have a credit union loan but that doesn't show up on the register yes it does everything shows up on the register you know within reason I think the limit is anything over 500 euros and I stand to be corrected on that but anything over 500 euros or thereabouts shows up in the central credit register be it a credit card term loan you name it all right. Uh, this week, Pension Awareness yeah. Week, uh, Francis. Uh, we'll be hearing lots about this, I presume. But mm. I mean, g- I can g- hear everyone g- cheering I know, now. Yeah, but but let, <laughs> let let's do it though. I mean, why should people? Why Listen, should they take on a pension? W- you know, and I did a presentation to a, a group uh, late, uh, literally last week, and I I simply put it: Why should I? What's in it for me? And they were the <laughs> topics because that's what yes. people need to well, see. Well, okay, then let me throw that back. In. Why should I? Why should I? Because are you, do you intend to retire someday? Oh, God, I do. All right, we don't want the county running the way I'm left, right today. and centre here the way, saying, oh, my God. The way I'm feeling today, for sure. Yeah. You know, so if you intend to retire someday, mm. if you feel you can live on 265.30, assuming you'll get the full state pension, could you live on 265.30? God, no. No. So if you can't, you need to make provision for your eventual retirement. So let's say somebody is earning... 50,000 a year and all of a sudden they drop down a lift shaft and that's the way I can describe it. They're literally finished at 65. They're gone from 50,000 euros a year down to just a little over 14 if we take the bonus week into uh, consideration at 66. That's a significant drop. Now I do appreciate people who may not have the mortgage, may not have the same appetite for finance or repayments or whatever. They still have to live. And have you looked at the cost of living lately? Yeah. So it, why should I is, unless you feel you could live on 265.30 a week, you need to make provision for your retirement. So what's in it for you, I hear you say? You know, it's savings for your eventual retirement to give you a bit of comfort. You're feathering your own nest now, okay? Um, tax break at your own rate, be that 20% or 40% on any contribu- contributions you make. It's a good habit to get into, to save, save, save for your eventual retirement. We talk about education plans, whatever. This is just another string to your bow financially. It's a very tax-efficient way of saving. And furthermore, your pension pot grows tax-free. Mm. The only time a tax is an issue in a pension pot is eventually when you're accessing it. And if it's done properly, mm. you should you should be going in higher 
and you should be coming out lower. But you okay? see, pe- people who don't want to pay into the pension, they come up with all sorts of things that they heard stories yeah. about so and so who took my out auntie, the pension. My yeah. brother. And I lost their, their you yeah. know what on it. And and look, and, you know. I've heard all of those yes. things. And again, I, and we've said that over years. What were you in? Who was advising you? You know, so you need to seek advice. And okay, people are going to say, oh, of course she's going to say that. <laughs> I am saying it. Yes. You need to seek advice. Um, what I know, regardless of, you know, and I'm not saying old wives taste. I swear I've seen some awful situations where people were so badly advised or got such a bad smack in, in, a, in a market. But normally what happens is people jump at the wrong time you know, dip, say, like 2008, oh, my God, the sky's falling in. They jump off the surfboard and go into cash. They never recover. So, again, that's all about advice. But I would say, you know, you will retire. You know, your income will reduce, if not, you know, fully. Some people work partially. Um, Look at the States. Mm. You know, anyone that goes to the States and you look at, go into any of these big DIY stores and you see people in their 80s still working because they have to. Um, so I would say if you have the right advice, if you have the right fund, if you're with the right provider, um, if you have the right charging structure, what's not to love? All right. Okay. But but get some advice and some, some independent advice. We're almost out of time, but of course it is nearing that time of year again yeah. in terms of tax returns and the like, Francis. Yeah. Isn't it? yeah. So in particular, I want to say to PAYE people this year, if you intend to make an additional voluntary contribution or a personal pension or PSA contribution, there's a, we're hearing a bit of an issue where before the revenue didn't require physical proof of the cert this year, we're, from what we're hearing so far, they want proof of it. Huh. So what does that mean? Before the 31st of October, you have to have completed your pension transaction and you have to have a certificate in your hand. Okay, so don't be running in the door of any institution or advisor on the 31st of October. The last thing you want to hear is, sorry, uh, we can't do this because we won't have the cert back to give you, to upload, to revenue, um, and that you're facing your full tax liability for 22. Please, this year, this is actually a live issue, um, and I know our own professional body are speaking to revenue about this at the moment because it's just something that cropped up in the last week. Especially if you're PAYE, will you please make sure that you give yes. yourself two or three weeks to get this done? For the others, for people that are, um, you know, filing online, 31st of October, if you're making paper return, I don't think anyone does that anymore. If it's via Ross, the Revenue Online Service, your cutoff date is 15th of November. But please, 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 no different to, to the PAYE workers. Please give yourself the time to do this. Please, because if you make an EFT payment, which is an electronic transfer, you need to make sure that you have about five working days for that to land. If it comes in two days after the 15th of November, you're not going to get your tax break. All right, Francis, if people want to talk to you and get some advice from you, how can they do that? Well, they can contact our office. which is 0526129487. I had to think about that for a moment. <laughs> or uh, via our website, which is www.foh.ie or at foh at foh.ie is my right. email. Francis, great to see you as okay, well. Thanks, thank thanks very much indeed. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Join the conversation in Tipperary. 
Contact us through Facebook, Twitter or email tiptoday at tipfm.com. Young woman from Ross Grey has set herself a gruelling challenge of climbing Ireland's highest mountain three times in less than one day to raise funds to help pay for the care needs of a little boy with profound health issues. Nikita Conlon is a 36-year-old care assistant and qualified personal trainer and joins me now. Nikita, good morning to you. Good morning, how are you? I'm very well indeed, but uh, I, I just can't even imagine you taking on something like this. It's amazing. But first of all, will you tell me about the little boy in question, Noah? So he's six years old and he's from Monaline in County Limerick. He's uh, non-verbal and he has autism. Um, he's recently undergo, uh, underwent brain surgery, which kind of led to some difficulties, which he had to get a shunt placed in his brain to drain excess fluid. And he then developed uh, meningitis. Oh, and yeah. he's also due to go for spinal surgery in the coming months. And he has to go to Texas to get an intense feeding therapy and intense spe- speech and language therapy. So yeah. funds are very badly needed, obviously, Nikita. Yeah, really badly needed for his family. Yeah. And how, how are you fundraising? I mean, how will that actually work in terms of your time and the like? How will you raise the money? So how I'm raising it is through the GoFundMe, um, so people can donate online. But also, I have to say, um, Hiking Buddies Ireland have been really good. They actually done a raffle where everyone paid €20 Euro per ticket, and they're giving away a free trip to Snowdon in Wales. So a girl actually won that last Saturday. Very good. So you've, you're creating some funds already, which, which is great. Tell, tell me about what you're taking on, for God's sake. I mean, to a couch potato like me, this sounds just so, <laughs> so grueling. Tell me what exactly you're going to be doing, Nikita. So we're climbing it on midnight on the 6th of October, and we're starting it, we're starting it at midnight. We're going to give five hours, so we hope to get down about maybe four or half four in the morning and start the second round at five o'clock in the morning. So people have a choice like to come and join say do all three do the first one second one or third one it's up to themselves the third one then is being taking place at 10 o'clock in the morning and we're going up and down the devil's ladder so it should be it should be hard well yeah I, I've heard about that particular climb from John G. O'Dwyer in the past I mean that is that is a very daunting climb the devil's ladder isn't it yeah no it is yeah it's hard enough like you know it's it's tough because it's very steep. You're going all uphill, yeah. like so. You, you take from Cronin's Yard to the end of the Devil's Ladder. It's actually five kilometre walk, and then you have to start the Devil's Ladder and climb up, and then you go another thirty, thirty-five minutes till you get to the summit. So you're talking about four hours all in all. Ah, stop! What, what for kind each of, climb? What kind of training do you have to do to make yourself ready for that? Well, my own training, I've been running and I've been in the gym three to four times a week. And this year alone, I've climbed 72 mountains. So I've really been putting the training in all year round. 72 mountains, including outside of the country, I believe, as well. Yeah, so I climbed Kilimanjaro in February of this year and we raised funds for uh, the Dean Maxwell and Ross Gray. There was myself and two other girls. And uh, I've also uh, climbed the highest peaks in England, Scotland and Wales. And I've been in Switzerland. I think you're absolutely incredible. And you managed to work as a personal trainer as well. Yeah, so I do personal training on the side. <laughs> absolutely incredible. Um, if people want to get involved with you where the climb is concerned, a portion of or all three, how can they do that? So they can contact me through my Instagram page. It's Nikki Conlon PT, or else they can contact me through Facebook, which is Nikita Conlon.
Okay, and Ali will have all of the details there where that is concerned. And just to remind people again, I mean, if they want to pay in to Noah's Fund, I presume they can do that uh, anyway. Yeah, so they, if they go through my Instagram page in the link in the bio, um, you can click the link and it'll bring you directly to the GoFundMe page. If not, they can go online to GoFundMe and it's under Climbing Karen Two Hills Three Times for Noah. All right. Well, we will follow your progress and uh, well done to you, Nikita. My best to Noah and the family as well. Thanks for coming on with us this morning. Thank you. No problem. Can I also say one more thing just before I go? Can I just thank um, Decathlon as well um, for sponsoring me all gear for the hike. Um, I'm going down on Wednesday and they're sponsoring everything for for doing it. Oh, very good. And well done to them too. thanks to Hiking Buddies Ireland. All right, thanks, Nikita. Thank you and good morning to you. That's Nikita Conlon there and uh, fair play to her. Now, uh, Karen Prendergast is with me in studio, our interior designer. I'm exhausted just talking about that, Karen. I'm not sure. But, of course, you're fit, aren't you? I'm fit enough. Um, yeah. I, I am fit enough. I do a good bit of walking and I always seem to be doing jobs in the house and out the back and in the garden and all was moving. So I'm fit enough. But um, I suppose my walk, you know, I've often mentioned it on the show, my walk, and just getting those little bits and pieces done for myself every day mentally are very important. That it works they well set me for you, up yeah. and it works well for me. So without them, and sometimes I get a week that it's really busy or a week that the weather is bad or whatever, and you kind of make up some excuses. And I'm sure listeners will, you know, um, yeah. know what I'm talking about. And um, it doesn't work for me. Yeah, well, I'm delighted to hear it. Um, I bought a bike, you see. Oh. So I have the gear. And I have I everything. Think I saw a bike rack at the back yes, of the car, know, on yes. the back of the car I've, as well. I have all the bits of me. Of course, the, the laughter that this causes at home. I, I love the support I get from, yeah, from, well, from people Yeah, well, you know, you might prove them all wrong. Yeah, well, hopefully I will indeed. Um, talk to me about interior design then, and particularly about furnishing a small space, Karen, because this is an issue for people all of the time, I mean, isn't it? Is. it is, and it's, all of us have a small space someplace. Yeah. You know, no matter what size the house is, there's small spaces. But, you know, I suppose in interior design and people are used to hearing me talking and sometimes not it overlaps, but it's often the same pointers, the same ideas, um, whether it's a big room or a small room or a big house or a small room or an apartment or a home office or whatever. So today I'm going to give you some good ideas. I have some pictures to show you because I know you always like some pictures. I have colour mm-hmm. charts with me as well and I have a few questions to answer from listeners. So we'll, we'll go as fast as we yeah, can to get sure. through them all. So, you know, as I said, it's likely that all of us have one room at least in the house that's compact and needs special consideration when decorating it. The type of furniture and decorative items you choose are really important to the overall room and I'm going to just mention a few and then I'll show you some Mm -hmm. pictures as well um, to explain them a little bit. So planning the layout for the space isn't always just about the size of the furnishings. It's the composition of the piece, the size, the overall look that you want for the room. Do you need texture? Do you need to avoid texture too much? Um, a lot of textured furnitures, furniture can actually make a room look smaller sometimes. You know the way oh, the yeah. mahogany furniture, now I have mahogany furniture and mm. I love it, but sometimes when you have too many pieces in a room, it looks cluttered. A lot of my phone calls would be, look, I'm not sure do you do this kind of work, but I my room just isn't working for me. I need to move a few pieces around. What's wrong? And that's often the case that maybe there's too many pieces. Some people might have furniture in a hall or furniture in a living room that we can move into a sitting room or vice versa and the whole lot. And it's not always about getting rid of, but maybe it's about moving around and um, often looking at lighting as well. Mm. Moving around the furniture, looking at lighting 
and of course the big lighting ward. in terms of space yeah. lighting in terms of space wow. to make sure that we've got um, lighting that lights the room enough that we have functional lighting that if we're using it for a study area or at night time that you have ambient lighting so you don't have to have the centre light mm. on because years ago most of the time we had very little plugs in the room I'm talking 20, 30 years ago 20, 25, 30 years ago and there are a lot of the houses I'm going back to now children are gone to school they want to redesign most houses are lacking in lighting so that is lighting, ceiling lighting for the room, not enough lighting for the space they're in, and also ambient lighting, nighttime lighting, task lighting. So lighting is a big one. Right. And it can make all the difference. And even if somebody just has a light fitting in the room and they don't want to take up floorboards upstairs and they don't want to do a big job, they can still replace that fitting, fitting to give them enough light sufficient to their needs. Yeah. Or to the size of the room. I was in a lighting shop a couple of months ago. Where do you even start? I mean, the amount of... The amount of um, stock in some shops. It's incredible. And also the price. Yeah, yeah. So lighting can be very expensive or it can be very reasonable if you're willing to shop around and not so much even shop around from shop to shop, but have a look and open up your mind to what's available. Right, okay. And just don't get I, stuck I took you off down a rabbit hole there, you... <laughs> So, think about usability. So, we're talking again, what are we going to use the room for? Um, if it's a limited space, has it just got one purpose? Has it more than one purpose? Um, an ottoman or a special chair is also a good place for storage. You know, if you're going to be using it as a coffee table, maybe oh, yeah. a big ottoman, you can um, take it up, put all your books, maybe remotes in there, whatever. A footstool, they're often, you can open up the top of them as well. I find them very good for, because I'm in a smaller area now, in um, my kitchen. Um, living in it most of the time and I find that those smaller um, we call them footstools as opposed to ottomans they're great for remote controls mm. maybe um, pins and you know mm. all that kind of so stuff. So back to storage again. Back to storage again. and uh, So usability is very important and an ottoman or um, a footstool can make a great little bit of storage for you. Uh, mirrors mm. open up a room. Yeah. Make all the rooms look bigger. Um and it, if you have a nice view opposite the mirror, it can almost give you a piece of art in the room as well as a nice mirror. So that's a great idea. Um, and as I said, make sure pieces that you select have more than one purpose. Examples are using a dresser as a nightstand or a coffee table that'll open up to store whatever you need. Um, in my room lately, in my bedroom, in our bedroom, I was looking for a seat that I could put on my shoes. So I got a seat with no back. Um, two people could sit in it, but two people wouldn't sit in it, of course. And it opens up on hinges at the back and I can store lots of more shoes. Oh, very good. Yes. Or blankets so or a, a trough. Yes. Um, I've just purchased a lot of boots lately. So, and they're hidden in boxes at right. home. So I'm a shoe kind of fanatic. But anyway, I'm short of space, <clears throat> storage for my shoes and stuff like that. Mm. So that worked out well for me. So when I was buying a seat to sit on for under the window, I picked a seat that would accommodate a good bit of storage for me. Okay, very so good. So that worked for me. Yeah. Um, try not to have every single bit of space in your room taken off. Leave a little bit of a blank wall, a little bit of a blank um, floor, mm. don't, and blank window. You often say that. Why Why is that? Because if there's too much going on, it's too fussy, it, it never looks right. The room is harder to clean. It's harder to keep tidy. Mm. So if you're, for instance, cleaning your bedroom out, you know, doing a clean every week or you're sitting or whatever, and you have to move lots and lots of stuff, it's not ideal. Right. So use storage wisely. Declutter. Um, window treatment. 
the Roman blinds are great. I have a little bedroom here for you to look at. Now, mm-hmm. how look? How good does that bedroom look? Oh, it looks gorgeous. It looks fantastic. Now, nice I, w- I would say, beautiful. looking yeah. at that, Fran, it's probably... 10 foot by 12 foot. So 10 it's foot wide. Room, it's a small it? yeah. room. It's got one window. But it doesn't look cluttered. It doesn't look cluttered because yeah. we have the bed with a nice upholstered um, headboard, two simple lockers, two lamps. Uh, I'd say it's subtle on the wall. Mm. A very plain Roman blind, but it looks gorgeous and a beautiful yeah. painting over the bed. Yeah, it's just just. Really it's stunning, looking, yeah. and the floor is simple. Now they're lucky where they have the window, of course, aren't they? You they are, and it's and you know it's great to have the use of a window <laughs> in a bedroom that you can open up yes. and leave the air through. Because um, I'm in a, a few houses lately, and I'm getting the story. <clears throat> a good pint, and nothing to do with a small room that we're talking about today, but a pint in general. Um, I've black in the corners of my room. Uh, I've condensation in my windows and the whole lot. So there are houses out there still that may not have vents in the walls. Mm. So just check your room. If you do need a vent in the wall, it's worth getting somebody in to put a vent in the wall. If you're not able to keep your window open a lot during the day, maybe you're yes, going to work or whatever, yeah. the window can't be opened. Um, so just check that. Mm. And I have another little study to show you. It's a cream one. Oh, again, again very simple. Great use of space. Great there, use of space. Yeah. Roman blind on the window so it doesn't take up any space on the eye. Very functional, blackout yeah. lining. Um Nice and, office and desk. And nothing costing a fortune. Absolutely yeah. nothing costing a fortune. Yeah. yeah. As I've said before, shop around, um, get the plan in your head of what you want to do with the room, regardless of the size. And um, you need to have a budget. Yes. That's a bigger okay. room. But look at the simplicity, friend. Right. Yeah. And again, there's lots of space, isn't there? Yeah. Lots of space. Um, no clutter. Yes. Plenty of storage. Plenty of light. The mm. no big curtains hanging on the windows. I love the single chair. It's just beautiful. It's isn't stunning, it? isn't yeah. it? It's an old style, it's an old style uh, Victorian yeah. chair, I'd say. Great with the head of the bed as a dark <coughs> colour. But again, a very modern, classical, elegant room that doesn't cost a fortune. Yes, but again, they're lucky with the windows. They there are, of course. And, and, yeah. and the windows are a feature in that room as well, aren't they? Have you time for a couple of questions? I have, of course. All right. Uh, was saying, I'm about to take out my old existing kitchen and put in a newly designed kitchen, how much should I budget for? It's a big question, isn't it? It's a big question. So I suppose if you're taking out your new kitchen, you're probably looking at you're probably looking at new appliances, new worktop, new flooring. Chances are you'll be changing your flooring. So I suppose the answer to that is anything from eight to ten thousand upwards. Upwards? Good God. I was talking to somebody um, the other day, I was getting my hair done and it was general conversation and she's actually uh, building a house at the moment and she was saying I was talking to somebody the other day and she said what is a bathroom costing now approximately and I was saying anything if you're gutting the whole bathroom retiling the whole bathroom buying your wear putting it back in and normally people run amok a little bit then with vanity units and stuff like that they want some extras um, anything from eight to 10,000 upwards and when you say upwards that's not from an interior designer that's from yeah, okay. you know standard and this this lady was just saying to me that a friend of hers spent 25,000 on her bathroom my God almighty. That must be an incredible bathroom, is it? Yeah, yeah I'm sure it is. I'm sure and, it's and fantastic. And still you showed me that lovely study and it was obvious to me there wasn't <clears throat> a that huge study, amount of That money. study, you know, from start to finish, um, carpet on the floor, um, units built in, yeah. Roman blind, that study was probably 2,000. Yeah, it's so, a lot of room so for 2,000. Now I know kitchens... Well, kitchens, you're looking at worktop, you're looking at flooring, you're looking at tiling, you're looking at granite, maybe, you're looking Mm. at all new appliances and and new whatever. So just if people are out there, the best way of thinking about revamping anywhere is to think about 
uh, the look that you want shop around you know sometimes the likes of a granite worktop isn't the be all and end all of a job it's much better to get the floor right the kitchen right the appliances right and maybe you might have to revisit something like a worktop in time to come or not it could be in the budget but I'm often on jobs and we have a budget starting out and maybe the job could last for six months or a year and something that we thought we wouldn't get into the budget first day we'll get into the budget at the end or something that we thought would be in the budget they might decide well I'll swap this out for this of course no I would say this wouldn't I but I, I think it's important to get some advice um, before you put in a new kitchen because the proportions you have to be very careful of haven't you and again not to talk about myself but I can talk about my own kitchen because it's, it's it's not private um, I have a lot of drawers in my kitchen now I mentioned this to you before not presses that I can't get in the back and I have to kneel down the whole lot so a lot of my units now are presses and I have my glasses I have my um, plates I have um, all my bits and pieces in them so they're much easier for me to use and I get a lot more into them okay all right, so to keep that in, in to mind. To keep that well, in mind, okay. if you're planning a kitchen, plan the kitchen around your own use. And can we stick with the kitchens? Because somebody's saying, my kitchen units are solid mahogany. Also, my stairs are solid mahogany wood. Can I paint them? I'm afraid to take the chance. Any advice would be yes, welcome. Yes, um, and this lady had spent an awful, awful lot of money um, many years ago on a handmade stairs and a handmade kitchen. So, yes, the, advi- the advice is that you can absolutely do that. But again, it's making sure it's cleaned down, sanded down, the prepped right the right primer put on it the right finish put on it and yes it will look absolutely fantastic but everything is in the preparation and this particular lady you know we're talking a lot a lot of money that she spent 30 years ago on those items but way too much money to ever take them out because she'd never replace them with like for like of course but it doesn't sound to me like a DIY job it's not that is not a DIY that is not a DIY job yeah all right, will you take a final one for me? Um, I'd like to repaint my PVC front door. Is it okay to paint it weather-wise? Uh, I hope to get it done in the first week of October. That's That was a great um, phone call, a question that I got, because I get many phone calls when I leave here, and I wanted to include it, because anything below 10 to 12 degrees, exterior, weather-wise, right. uh, you shouldn't attempt front door. Okay. So pick a day that the weather is good and the day after is going to be very good and so is that you can get enough coat, your your primer and your finish on and that it'll get time right. to harden. Sounds like a stupid question, but do you, do you send the PVC to you would for give grip? It a, you would, you give it a light, you give it a wash down, a very, very light sanding just to key the surface, but not rough sandpaper or anything like that, a very, very light sanding, clean it down again and you're prepped then, ready for your primer. But okay. conditions, weather conditions do matter because the paint needs to harden. Right, very good. And would do you want to throw in a quick piece, piece of advice about a, a colour? Yes, please, if you don't mind. Yeah. So I'm back to normal colours that I talk about a lot. Subtle is one. Willow white is another. Salter stone is another. Shell cove is very good. Ivory tusk is really popular at the moment for right. kitchens. And, and just to remind listeners, the names you're giving out, if you Google those, you'll get the actual colour. Everything. And I talk yeah. about the subtle colour and... The kitchen that, colour. That's the name of a colour, isn't color, it? Colour, S-U-B-T-L-E. Yeah. But if people are looking to paint a kitchen, the companies have brought out a new colour this autumn and it's the exact colour of subtle. So if somebody's looking to change their paint, change their kitchen and they're looking at colours, subtle is new on the manufacturer's list. All right. Somebody's saying, can you change your presses on the bottom to drawers instead and keep your top as presses? 
Uh, yes, I'm sure you can. If you get again, it would be a kitchen company that you would check with. So what they're saying is they want to swap out their presses that open okay. underneath for drawers. So it is a different unit internally. It would be a different unit, but I I would say it can be done. Yeah. Right, depending on the material, I suppose, in the first place. Well, depending on the material, but maybe this person is going to swap out their drawers, their presses for drawers, and then paint the whole kitchen. All right, okay, okay, very good indeed. If people want to contact you and talk to you about your work as a, an interior designer, Karen, how can it's they do that? It's 086 That's 86 606-9009 and webpage interiorconcepts.ie Facebook right. and Instagram. Always great to see you. Thanks very Thank much indeed, Karen. Thank you. Um, news and information is coming up. Tip today with Fran Curry With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. Your Peugeot car or van might benefit from a free software upgrade. For more information and to find out if this applies to your vehicle, call the lads in Slattery's Garage, puck on on 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Thanks, Pat, and uh, welcome back to the final hour of uh, Tip Today. Fran, will you wish Joe O'Donovan a very happy 80th birthday today from Valerie Dean Jimmy? Uh, Kelly, of course, we'd be delighted to, to do so. Joe, have a lovely birthday and uh, well done to everybody there. And uh, Elaine was on to me very early, in fact, in uh, the show this morning uh, and uh, wondering, could we say happy birthday to my mom, Mary Pollard of Colbrook. She's an avid listener of uh, your show every day and, as I say, that's from uh, Mary's daughter, Elaine. And sure, I know of Mary for years and years and years uh, interacting with us here on the programme and I hope she has a lovely day uh, as well. Now, we put up a post on social media about game aggression and um, the like because that's what we were speaking about in in the first hour of the programme. One person uh, making the point that this aggression has always been uh, going on but it's just that people record it on their phones now so it becomes, it makes uh, more people aware of all that's uh, going on. Yeah, maybe maybe that is uh, the case because that point has been made to us uh, several times, I suppose. Um, but does it not mean that you should be more careful about who you're abusing and what you're saying and uh, the content of your abuse and all of that because it probably will be recorded. Um, an email in from Gary and uh, Gary says, Fran, I'm listening to the story of the central bank making a boo-boo. Here we go again. Will anyone be held accountable? We shouldn't be surprised that people are protesting in Dublin. Our politicians and officials continue to get their massive salaries and gold-plated pensions and are never held responsible for anything. And if we protest about this lack of transparency and accountability, we are a threat to democracy. And that's in on our email address, tiptoday at tipfm.com. Final one for now, a listener called in to comment on the protest being undertaken by creche owners today, which will run for the rest of the week. Um, They've closed their doors in protest at what they see as the lack of government support. But our caller is questioning if cash-in-hand childminders are contributing to this problem. The caller feels that uh, there should be more heavy-handed approach to childminders who mind kids at home. And he says that the rest of us have to pay our taxes. Why can't they? For every problem, there's a solution. Dear Phil, on Tip Today with Phil Prendergast. 
Good morning, Phil. How are you? Great, Fran, and yourself? So are you all ready to sort out the problems of Tipperary and well, further afield? I don't know if we'll be able to sort out them, but anyway, we will give our <laughs> tuppence halfpenny and we will appreciate any feedback we get. Well, you do it extremely well anyway, Phil. Uh, letter number one. Dear Phil, I'm writing to you about my friend who really has my head wrecked. We're both in our 50s and we've been friends for over 20 years. She's a lovely lady, she's good fun and very kind and she's a great shoulder to cry on and can be very supportive. The only problem is that she is unbelievably moody. You never know which side of her you're going to get. It's getting to the stage now where I dread meeting her because I'm trying to gauge if the form is bad and then spend the time trying to win her around. It's very exhausting. She can get very moody if we are doing something she doesn't want to do and hasn't chosen and then can make a nice day out turn bad very quickly. I've tried to let her pick the days out, but while she will start in good form, something minor could happen that will turn her mood downwards. I've asked her why she's so moody lately, but she says she isn't and doesn't know what I'm talking about. How do I deal with such a moody friend? There's one for you now, Phil. Well, what I think, Rena, and I've read this a few times, like they seem to have days where they pick to go off and do stuff. Mm. And I think that maybe a whole day with a moody friend might be a bit too much. Mm. And maybe they should divide it up into smaller bite-sized pieces where um, the form can be good and they can go and meet for a cup of coffee and maybe a walk in the park or a lunch and conclude it within a two-hour window frame. Because it ju- it just seems as if maybe this woman isn't as fond as the l- of the long days out as the writer is. Yes, yeah. Um, and it could be that she's maybe not feeling well and doesn't really want to say it. Um, anyone whose form can deteriorate, it can be, that could be anything. It could be low blood sugar. It could be, you know, it could be any issues that she might have mm. a medical condition that she doesn't talk about. Or it could be that she's just not feeling and well. I was trying to guess the age, but could it be menopause, for example, oh, if she has become Abs- different absolutely. In, in recent times? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there, and again, the menopause is so vague because yes. it can happen from... You're 40, and of course people get premature menopause as well, but like it can happen from the 40s right up to the 60s. And it's just a myriad, for some people they sail through it, and for other people they have nothing but torment and Mm. night sweats and all sorts of complications and they need all sorts of help. But it is a time where, you know, you mightn't have the same energy throughout Mm. the whole day and that can be perceived as turning into bad form when in fact you might just get a bit introspective and be a bit tired and doesn't want to talk as much. So the the writer of this is is doing a lot of judgments about, you know, that she turns into bad form. Maybe they're going places or they're seeing Mm. people she doesn't want to see or maybe she's just tired. If she's had one of those nights where you're getting up and showering and doing all sorts because you have nights with you, you wouldn't might be in the best of form. Now, the better thing might be just to cancel it altogether. Do you mind if we take a rain check? Yeah. Because they're good friends for over 20 years. And like... Yeah. They're in their 50s. And, and, and that's why I can't understand why they haven't sat down and discussed this in some sort of a, a way that would resolve it. Uh, and, uh, and they could resolve it very easily if yeah. they decided instead of going out, out, that yes. she'd bring her to her house 
Yes. And have a bit of lunch or whatever and it's concluded and I'll, I'll drop you home or she walks home or she drives home or whatever and vice versa. That it doesn't always have to be out. Maybe she doesn't have the money for going out. Hmm. Maybe there's maybe there's other stuff going on. But I, I wouldn't, um, you know, she said, I've tried to let her pick days out, but while she starts in good form, something, something minor could happen. Yes. So it could be that she's worrying and fretting about something. Yeah, because one of the telling lines is, I've asked her why she's so moody lately. So it's a relatively recent... Yeah. And she says she doesn't know what she's talking about. Yeah about. Yeah. So I mean there's either there is an unawareness that she's she's tired but that could be that she is just tired. Yes. And you know perhaps her friend might need a checkup. Right. So to acknowledge that. To acno- absolutely way, acknowledge yeah, saying look I know that you're you're tired lately when we go will we make it a shorter visit? Will we just go for lunch and come back? Will we just go for a drive and come back? You know that you're not you're not going out for a day. Do you know yes. what I mean? That yeah. it doesn't have to be, you know. She said she's good fun and very kind. She's great shoulders crying and can be very supportive. So obviously she's been supplying mm. a good lot of emotional support for the writer of the letter. Right, so maybe it's and time may, for... Th- is the writer of the letter giving her as much emotional support back? And that's not a judgment. It's yeah. merely a comment on what's in the letter. All right, very interesting. Because it is difficult. All right, letter number two. Uh, Dear Phil, I'm getting married in September and I'm really looking forward to the big day. At the moment, we're in the process of of organising the Hen Weekend. Everything has been going well and there have been no headaches with uh, any of the arrangements, but I'm confused about invites to my hen. My friends have said that I should invite my mother-in-law, but I don't really want to. She's a nice woman, but not a big drinker, although I think she would go if she was asked. I, on the other hand, I am a big drinker, and I like to really let loose when I go out. My mother-in-law probably has never seen that side of me, and I don't know if she would be very impressed. I thought about not inviting her altogether, but my friends warned me this could insult her. I'm completely confused about what to do. Do other brides invite their mother-in-law to their hen. Don't dream of inviting <laughs> your mother-in-law to your hen, my dear. I've never seen you be so absolute. Uh, you know, don't dream of it. Don't yeah. dream of it. This yeah. mother-in-law would be appalled to go to something like that. This is for yes. young people. Maria having a last great hurrah before they get married and they're tied to the kitchen sink barefoot and pregnant for the next 10 years. <laughs> Lol. Um, no need whatsoever yeah. to be making, um, asking mother-in-laws to, to hen nights. Hen, hen nights, now it's hen weeks, yeah, hen, no, weekends. hen weekends. It's Good madness. God. It's absolute madness. Um, it's it's a, a, a thing that has become normalised. Mm. And in fact, there's a huge amount of tack involved in hen parties and especially the ones that involve going abroad. Yes, I know. Um, there's there's some very lovely ideas where people go to the races and they have a lovely day and they have a few drinks and they come home and they're not blown off their head and thinking, what did I do? But there's some hen parties and you'd see them. And my sister used to have a house up in Carrick and Shannon and I used to go up there quite regularly. And it was kind of the, the, the mecca capital of the world for hen parties. Right. You would be appalled. On, on the boats, was it? They'd it was on, on the, the boats. boats, it was in the yeah. hotels. Yeah. Um, it just was a town that attracted people, you know, for, yeah, yeah, for sure. him. Because it, it was... That, would you be appalled, would you? Absolutely appalled at some of the carry-on. I mean, even the way they'd be dressed and the, yeah. the veils and the... 
the root, the root. But look, that's all part of the crack when yeah, you're young, I know, you know. Yeah. But yeah, I don't bother at does all it, asking uh, your mother-in-law. She it, won't be a bit insulted. Does it bother you if somebody would describe themselves? Because I rarely, even even somebody who is a big drinker would rarely describe themselves as being a big drinker. Does that? Yeah, well, it's just part, it's part of her makeup that right. her mother-in-law doesn't appear to drink much, and she probably likes five pints. Right. Okay. You know, and but and like. <clears throat> that's fine but she's she's getting married to this woman's son she knows her well there isn't a need to bring her to a party that's going to involve people of her own age her mother-in-law will not want to go right so so it's a bit of a relief for the mother-in-law absolutely the fact that um, and just say the mother-in-law will we'll go out for her but she's going to be her daughter-in-law for the rest of her life after this so All right, she so should uh, leave her at know, home yeah, yeah. leave her at home and continue on your merry way with your big drinking and all absolutely of that absolutely if she wants to the final one um, will have eyebrows raised, I would imagine, Phil. But let me launch into this. Dear Phil, I was away with the lads for a weekend to Amsterdam. And while we were there, we availed of all the local delicacies, including the ladies. I would like to stress that I didn't go all the way, but there were services exchanged. A few of us did it, and in all honesty, we had a great time, and in my mind, it wasn't cheating because I didn't have sex. So, while I wasn't feeling too guilty about it, I discovered that I had some growths that I had checked by my doctor, and it turns out that I have genital warts. It can only be as a result of this interaction in Amsterdam because I wasn't with anybody else. I'm getting treatment from the doctor and I need another five days of treatment before I get the all clear. My wife is starting to get suspicious because I'm rebuffing her advances and she's starting to question why I don't want to do anything. I don't think it's worth admitting what happened when I'll be in the clear next week anyway, but how can I keep turning her down without her getting the wrong idea? I love the way he says about her getting the wrong, the wrong idea. idea. She yeah. didn't do any, well. This is interesting because I'm confused with this letter. Are you confused I, with it's, it? It's quite confusing yes. because first of all, genital warts are the most commonly sexually transmitted infection, and certain types of the HPV, which there's a vaccine for now, mm. and most males and females are vaccinated against the human papilloma virus. They um, cause genital warts, and but they don't cause cancer, right? But the treatments can get rid of them. And once you have genital warts or HPV, you can always give that sexually transmitted infection to someone else. And you have to use condoms or practice safe sex. So yeah. if they had an exchange, this man and this, I'm assuming it's another one woman. In Amsterdam. Yeah. I don't think he would have gotten, he would have warts already. Right. They, they take longer than that. Okay, and and he says he didn't go all the way. Would you have to have you see, penetration sex to no, to, no, to you don't have to have penetrative oh, sex. Okay. You can have um, like you can the the virus doesn't care what part of your body it's ah, going to transmit no. with. Okay, right. And I mean they, that's very subtle, Phil. I get you now. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. And okay, and right. also oral sex is right. going to cause okay. genital warts in your mouth. So and even well. though they're in your mouth, they're not mouth warts; they're genital warts. So. Um, you can get them in the groin area, in the anus, in the rectum, the penis, the scrotum, the vagina, inside the vagina, the vulva, the vagina, lips, the labia, the cervix, lips, mouth, tongue and throat. Okay. And it's, it's very unlikely that the sexually transmitted infection that he seems to have, that he contract, he probably contracted another one there, but he will have been tested. If anyone is ever concerned about a sexually transmitted infection, completely anonymously 
go to an STI clinic in Washford or Kilkenny or Limerick or Dublin. Mm. Completely anonymous. You get a full checkup, you get the full treatment, and it's nobody knows your business. Right. And um, this man may have gotten the genital warts from someone else, and it could have been his wife if she's had previous partners. Wow. So well, there's that's... a. You know, so it's not okay. not as simple as it seems. It would be very, very, very unusual for someone to present with genital warts that soon after having a contact with somebody. And it is very likely that his lady he met in Amsterdam, it would be kind of known for that kind of behaviour. So they mm. may not, they might just go and have a, a check-up every couple of weeks or months and say, I'll just get the all clear and I'll get treated for this, 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 this and this. But, like, that's the nature of the job they're in and it's dangerous. Um, I don't know what he's going to do um, in terms of... Rebuffing her advances. Rebuffing, as he, he can't keep that so doing forever. But he is going to have to say, look, I, I got genital warts. Um, they take they can take months and years to actually yes. manifest. So it's not it's not a quick thing. So he didn't get the genital warts from his activities. Right. Isn't that interesting? Right? And he should go to an STI clinic and he should have a full workup. Right. Because that'll show if he's got syphilis or if he's got gonorrhea or if he's got any of the other STIs. So the treatment he's had from his doctor, you would say, Phil, isn't enough. He's got to go further. Well, no, he needs he? to make sure that because the, the genital warts would not appear that quickly. Right, okay. And is it antibiotics that you'd be... Yeah, well, gentle warts are nearly always... They call it frozen off, but really they're burnt off. Oh, God. But you'd be... Yeah, you'd be asleep for that, or you'd be... You'd be... You wouldn't feel it anyway. Okay, right. And in terms... I mean, at the end there, he's looking for your advice in terms of how he deals with with his wife. I mean, what, what do you say to well, that? Well, he could... You see, he's, he's got to live with this. He's going to say, I, I had some growths down there and I went to the doctor... And I'm having treatment. I, I, the doctor said they're probably there years. Okay. Um, and really, she should get checked as well. Okay. And so. and that would be the best approach. He then doesn't have to say, but in the meantime, he should make sure he hasn't got a coincidental sexually trans. And if if the woman turns up to have a sexually transmitted infection that he may have given to her, he's in bother then. All right bit of explaining to do. A bit of explaining to do indeed. Phil, always a delight. Thanks very much indeed. Thanks, Thanks Phil. Thank you. Good morning to you. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Welcome back to Tip Today. A listener says, I went to my daughter-in-law's hen and it was just a brilliant weekend. But then again, I can drink like the rest of them, says one of our listeners. Well, well done you. Somebody else saying, what about the bride's mother? Okay for her to go and lots of question marks uh, there. 
And, um, okay, lots more bits and pieces coming in there in response to some of those letters uh, to Phil. I'm joined in the studio now, though, by, by Ellie. Good morning to you, Ellie. Good morning, and, friend. And good to see you. Um, yeah, let's go back to what we were talking about in the first hour about the aggression on the sidelines and the aggression in general at matches and the abuse and all of that sort of thing. What's been coming into you? We got a lot of calls this morning from kind of a large range of people, from parents as well as coaches as well as referees. And we had, uh, I spoke to one man who is um, an active referee at the moment and he said that the abuse is getting worse and worse all the time. Interestingly, he said... Now, he's a ref across a number of, of sports as well, but mostly in GA. He said GA is by far the worst. And the worst age groups in that are the younger age groups. So you're talking as young as under nines, under 11s, under 13s. The most abuse. The most abuse. Right. He said you won't get half as much abuse in a senior game that you will parents. in a juvenile. From, from parents, parents and also from coaches on the side of the field as well. He was querying whether, whether it's the fact that these are people who maybe aren't that familiar with GAA. So these are people who don't understand the rules and maybe the complexity. So if a ref makes a call, they don't really understand what the call is. So that's what they're giving out about. They just see it as a slight against them. Um, he also warned that the aggression and the physicality um, that's uh, acted upon with refs, that that's getting worse as well. And he is worried that somebody, some ref somewhere is going to get seriously injured, if not killed someday, if the GA don't address it. He was very clear that the GA aren't strong enough when it comes to addressing it. But then, at the other side, I have to say, there was a couple of calls in from people um, who said that they witnessed a couple of things at matches over the weekend that were lovely, that mm. will never be highlighted. There was one where a player, uh, and this was in a tip match, got booked over the weekend for, I think, giving abuse to a ref or giving abuse to a player. But at half time, that player was brought over to the referee by their coach and both of them nice apologised to the ref. Nice and everyone yeah. saw it and applauded. Okay, well, that, Which is that, lovely that, to that, see. That so you have that as well. And I have to say, I remember there's one match, you know, I go to a lot of juvenile matches there was one match we played Latin and mm. Latin are very strong with us and it was one of the most physical games I ever saw in a juvenile game Go, and go, go back to your wording of that now <laughs> Latin are very strong with us What exactly I don't know what it is when we when, now this is Skaheen when Skaheen and Latin meet I don't know they just they really go for each other they, but yeah. not in a dirty way they're very physical and this was a game it was toe to toe like it was very tight I think there was only a point in it and we were all killing each other the spectators and all we were killing each other but there was one point where one of our lads went down at the end because he'd cramp in his legs and one of the Latin fellows who was marking him came over and lifted the leg to push oh, it to try and wow, relax nice the muscle. Yeah. I thought, like, it can turn like that and that's the beauty of the sport. Yes. That you, You're ideal place to, to be talking to me about this because you're a mum. Yeah. Um, and you, you attend matches. You're also a coach yeah. as well. And uh, I'm trying to put this gently, Ellie, but you, you, you're passionate. Uh, I am, to, but to do you know, least. I'm more passionate on the sideline than I am in the field for some reason. And I have never got abuse as a coach on the sideline, but ever. they wouldn't dare. They wouldn't. And I wonder, is it a thing, like I'm in ladies football. I've never seen it in ladies football. Now, camogie might be different and maybe I'm just, I remember Tom McGrath always saying to me, you know, he doesn't get abuse, but he blocks it out. So if he does get it, he doesn't know about it. And maybe I'm the same way if, if I'm coaching, I don't hear it. Yeah. And I don't get abuse. Yeah. Well, but as I then say, for I the think, ref is different. I think they're just scared of you, really. Maybe. Like, like all of us. Um, <laughs> but but the other thing brought up earlier on as well by one of our contributors, I think it was Sean, in fact, who was saying that, you know, he saw situations where it was mothers were totally... Oh, were vicious. 
We are vicious. Okay, you admit to that. Yes, yeah. but I have to I think it's because we're so protective and we're so invested because I think maybe mothers go to, oh, I know I'd kill all the fathers will kill me, but it, you, the mothers tend to be more regular matchgoers than yeah. the fathers. Well, the fathers the will dip driving. in and out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and look, they're busy and they're working and maybe the mothers just allocate that time a bit better. You know how organised we oh, are. Oh, don't get me started. But then to be fair, I have to say, sometimes, I'm going to be slaughtered for this as well, refs don't help themselves. Oh no. There is one oh, ref no. in Tipperary and when I see him coming, I, we're going to lose that match no matter how good we play. Ah, stop. He no. will always go against us. Stop, no. I am telling you. Yeah. So that doesn't help either because you're starting going into a match saying, sure, this is hopeless now. He won't give us anything and he but never sure, does. How, how could that be allowed to happen? But this is it and you have that in some matches and I think every club has that ref that doesn't like them. And they hate seeing him coming because they know they won't get a uh, thing. Ali, there has to I'm be sour grapes you, attached to that. I don't think so. No? I don't think so. No, oh, yeah. I mean, I've we've lost finals and everything over stupid decisions over a ref. Why in the name of God, though, would anybody be a ref? I've no, no idea. I mean, really. And I know they're bringing in this, is the young whistlers, I think they call it, where young What's juvenile that? players are getting trained up to ref matches. So they would coach underage games, then like under nines, under tens. And it's a great way of bringing lads into refing. But mm. I think anyone involved in GA really if you don't like playing is top yes. and if maybe you don't make a team or can't play for whatever reason then you might coach I don't know does refing come that high in the totem pole and do you know the other part of the discussion this morning was oh sure rugby really have it to- together now again you've experience of both yeah um, so what, what's your experience some of the worst abuse I've seen is at a rugby match not the, to worst. the ref though to everybody. Are you serious? Everybody. I remember my... So this is a myth, is oh, it? It's a complete myth. I think it depends on what teams you're facing. Some of them are very respectful, some are not. Yes. Um, and there was one time where my young fellow was injured, so he acted as a linesman. Now, I wasn't at the match myself, but he said the abuse he got, he was even squared up. What? And he's 16. And a, a man came up to him and squared up to him. And called him every name under the sun. And he was upset when he came home. And he's a hard young fellow. He doesn't get upset. but he And he hasn't gone near the line or won't even do umpire since. Right, so this is a bit of a so myth afraid. that things are Completely. more genteel where we're... And what I've seen a lot in rugby that I haven't seen in GA is some racial abuse. You would see a lot more of that in rugby. Would you? Yeah, yeah. Um, now, we have players uh, in our team that have been abused a couple of times for their, their colour or for their ethnicity. That's incredible. And I haven't seen it in GA, but I have seen it in rugby. So I think it is a myth that it doesn't happen in rugby. It does. Maybe right. a bit less. Can it be stamped out? Can something be done about this? Is there, I think there needs to be a bit of a root and branch approach to it. And you see, there's a bit of a pack mentality to it, I think, as well. Like if, if somebody All beside right, you okay. is going mad, then you tend to get mad and then it riles up the whole crowd. So if you have a calm crowd, I think you'll, you'll tend to have a calm match. Yes. But I, I presume you could never see a situation where you have a passive kind of, you know, You'd be surprised. Yeah. You would be like, I, I think I'm quite passive. And I've gotten... A, yeah, sure. Now, I haven't thrown abuse at the ref, but I've gotten passionate about it. Yeah. I remember one match where uh, we were in the car. It wasn't me now, but it was one another one of the mothers. And it was a pretty contentious game. And we, we tried to leave pretty quickly because we knew there'd be trouble. But one of the cars was surrounded by coaches and players because they felt a player was being dirty. And they couldn't even surrounded. leave the ground. Were surrounded, yeah, by players and coaches. But, like, if that was done in any other sphere, any other 
place, that would be seen to be a Like if you think here, if, the... if you came out the door one day and there was a crowd of people stranding your car because they weren't happy with what you had said on air. Only happens on Mondays and Tuesdays. <laughs> Sorry. No, but okay. But it would I be totally different. You know, but we well, kind of take it as... Police, a, absolutely. You know. Yeah, you would. So it's different when it's in... It is, and I don't know why, but then I think for a lot of parents, you go home then and you're like, oh, jeez, I'm going to show myself out there and I shouldn't have. And there's just something strange about the passion it invokes in you and the bit of the pack mentality that it has as well. Mick says, Ellie is 1,000% There you right. go, thanks, Mick. Uh, he says, um, I, yeah, it's something like what I said earlier on, says Mick, and uh, there is a need for Brian Gavin's ref watch. He's wondering what Ellie thinks about that as well. I don't know some, what that is. Some referees are answerable to know. I think it's some sort of a, a critique of referees on okay. a Monday following the, the weekend's games or something like that. While most are brilliant and do a great job, uh, there are some referees that clearly don't have a clue. But I, I wouldn't say that, well, maybe they don't have a clue, yeah. but it's just that there is, with some refs, there tends to be a bias. All right. There does tend to be a bias. And that's not all of them. Right. But I think every club will have that ref that they don't like. If any of our listeners want to share stories of Ellie's behaviour on the <laughs> sideline... At, uh, any they can't match. prove nothing, friend. <laughs> Ellie, thanks very thanks, much indeed. Friend. If you want to talk to Ellie, you can do so for free. 1800-938-007. Join the conversation in Tipperary. Contact us through Facebook, Twitter, or email tiptoday at tipfm.com. Tip Today with Fran Curry With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie If it matters to you, it matters to us. Call Tip Today on 1-800-938-007. Legal discussion on Tip Today is brought to you in association with Lynch Solicitors Clan Mel on the web at lynchsolicitors.ie and at divorceinireland.com. John Lynch is with me in studio. Good morning to you, John. Um, That controversy over the spinal surgeries that left many children injured, the issue of using implants or other devices that are not Mm. regulated or approved with your experience... I'm just interested to know what you made of that story to begin with. Yeah, I mean, you have to say that, I mean, it's the Children's Health Ireland um, organisation that's involved in it and you have to commend them for the speed with which they actually went about dealing with it. I mean, they immediately kind of put their hand up and said that there was an issue and they commissioned an internal review and an external review you know all really you know I mean we're talking about children we're, we're talking about spina bifida um, I mean again it's like something you know it's like everything else um, <clears throat> there's the legal aspect to it which obviously I can talk to but there's the human aspect to it as well I mean it, it appears to be the case that there was an increase in the number of surgeries that were undertaken and there was a <clears throat> a significant fallout from the surgeries, you know, in terms of uh, poor operative, mm. uh, post-operative uh, issues that arose, you know. Mm. Um, including one, 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 death. one leading yeah. to a death, you yeah. know. Now, so, as I said, you know, you have, to start, you have to start by commending them. I mean, you know, we're all familiar with Temple Street and we're all familiar with the various hospitals that deal with children and how excellent they are in dealing with it. But I mean, one of, one of, when they looked at it and you know they acknowledged it, 
but they then went and they assessed it. And when they assessed it, I mean, the analysis didn't come out very well. You know, there was a high incidence there that obviously... So even with the best practices and with, with all the safeguards that we try and implement, I mean, one of the main discussion points around the whole area of medical negligence is that the cost of it over the last number of years and the rising cost of medical negligence literally since the say the 70s started to build momentum because of the change of attitude by people to what would have been a very paternalistic view of medicine and a shift away from that to a more patient-centred view of medicine and I mean obviously they have very much of a patient-centred view of medicine here in this situation but it still resulted in a very poor outcome by reason of poor systems within the the organisation and when they when they carried out their investigation like it kind of highlights when you move out of the practical issues that they addressed it kind of highlights the complexity and the nuances that you have to deal with in the context of responsibility by medical practitioners in terms of dealing with patients because obviously when you're dealing with and again you can look at this through the prism of the patient the medical practitioner or the lawyer but as you look at it the you know the the, the same situation arises because you know, where is the line between medical responsibility and legal liability? Mm. And this was a this was a test that the courts grappled with for quite some time in trying to establish what exactly is the proper test to apply here because where is the line between, you know, interfering with good medical practice and reviewing good medical practice and coming to a point where you say, well, actually, no, there is a responsibility here, a legal responsibility here. And that the, the ultimate shift in the uh, view of the... looking through the legal viewfinder, mm. the ultimate shift was when they moved away from the approach of saying, well, you know, <clears throat> the professional is the person who is entitled to make the decision in the best interest of the patient. Now, obviously, best interest is a huge element to yes. all decisions. But the weight of the decision has to come down on judging whether or not what was done is consistent with proper standards within the profession, be it medical, mm. legal, engineering or any other profession. And in this case, John, is part... I mean, for instance, if you were to represent some of the people yeah, involved here, yeah. is part of your job not done by the investigation? I mean, there's... Really, a very, yeah, very interesting point to make uh, insofar as, yes your analysis like because you know you have to remember that one of the kind of responsibilities of any professional is to assess the situation in the particular context so obviously I'm looking at it not from a medical perspective but from a legal perspective and I'm looking at duty of care and I'm looking at the standard of care that's required so yes you're you're correct when you say that it is a, it is of assistance in the same way as w- you, if you remember all the various reportings that was done under the you know the, all the hip surgeries mm. all mm. the reporting that was done under the cancer care cancer misdiagnosis yes. and all the inquiries check and all yeah that. exactly yes. cervical mm. check they're they're high and very significant examples of how 
you need to investigate in order to establish whether or not, first of all, is there a duty of care from a legal point of view? Second of all, is there a breach of that duty of care? And third of all, does the outcome, the, the medical outcome, is that consistent with the breach? So in other words, there's a kind of a complex, well, complex is probably too strong a word, but there is a kind of an interlocking analysis there to determine whether or not you can successfully, from a legal point of view, establish that there is a breach of a duty of care and that the damage results is, is as a result of that. And the complexity of it really very much resonates around the fact that obviously you're dealing with people who, like people with spina bifida, have huge challenges from a medical point of view and from a you know from an outcome point of view in any event. So you're <clears throat> you're trying to establish because you see it's a little bit like the difference between the let's say the medical council that might be investigating whether and we're we're talking medicine here might be investigating whether or not a medical practitioner breached a code of practice and then you're looking at it from a legal point of view to see have have you established you know, an obligation there? Have you established a breach of that obligation? And has that, you know, as the results of the breach, is that linked, directly linked to Mm. the actual medical outcome? Because, and therein, as you can imagine, lies all of the the issues that you have to try and resolve. So, So when you ask me the question, will the report give you the answer to that? Well, without appearing to make it overly complicated, Yes, you have a certain amount of information, but the answer may not be the same. So in other words, when they're doing the report, they're doing the report with a view to improving the system. And that's the main emphasis of the report. Whereas when I'm looking at it, I'm looking at it on the basis of establishing on the historical facts whether there are facts there that establish that, first of all, there was a duty of care, there was a breach of duty of care, and the outcome was mm. as, as a result of that. Because, after all, just because, and I don't mean just because, because that is making it very uh, factual, factually based, but just because there's a bad outcome doesn't mean that there's a liability there. In the same way as just because, and this, this is one that often comes up, uh, you know, just because somebody is prosecuted for dangerous driving, uh, does that mean th- that you're going to successfully win a civil action or vice versa? But if somebody wins a civil action, does it mean that they'll be successfully criminally prosecuted? Yes. And the answer is quite often no, because the onus of proof, in other words, the, um, the, the, the strength of the evidence has to be much higher where you're looking at a criminal prosecution as opposed to a civil case of establishing whether there's a breach of duty. And and I do do take your point because where medical procedures are concerned, Mm. I mean, most of us would acknowledge that, you know, bad things happen. People die under anaesthetic or, or, or you you know, but but not necessarily finger pointing at the practitioner. But in this case, with the result of the investigation, it appears that there is culpability, you know. Is well, and, and therein lies the answer to yes, your question. Yeah. It appears, appears. based yes. on the information that they're... Now, and you see, when you look at the results that they come up with, and what I mean what I mean by that is when I'm looking at what they, they came up with... Sorry, that's came up with... Let me rephrase that. When you look at what 
they analysed and what the analysis yielded, what were the results that it yielded, it said, like, number one, an unplanned return to surgery was one of the tests they used. Somebody was going back into surgery, having had the primary surgery, which I find it hard to pronounce. It's capectomony or something like that, but it's a very specific, and it was it was actually suspended when they carried out the investigation, yes. which could might lead you to the view that every operation that, because it was suspended, might lead you to argue that that's a liability issue and therefore you should succeed. But that's not necessarily the case, if you know what I mean. It just yes. means, as a precaution, they suspended it while they were inquiring because what they did find as an initial investigation was that there was a higher than expected level of poor outcome from that particular surgery. So therefore, as a precaution, they immediately stopped it. So you can't yes. draw inferences from that as a matter of fact. But then when you, looked, you look at the, what they looked at, they looked at three kind of, you know, again, you know, absolutely commendable that they went about investigating this and fairly quickly after it became mm. evident. And so we did issue. learn something oh, they from, did. from previous experiences. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. So they looked at unplanned <laughs> surgery returns, they looked at infections and they looked at metalwork complications because it, it's a surgery that involves an, an element of metalwork to it depending on the extent mm. of it. And they said that when they looked at the 16 and they took only a small number and one of the things that strikes you of course is that they did both an actual uh, check of specific cases, which which is what you would have expected, but they also did a kind of an international review of all the literature out there on these types of surgery. And one of the things that kind of stood out when I read it, certainly uh, stood out when I looked at it, was the usual one that hits you when you're talking about statistics. And you know the way people talk about statistics and can quote them, and we often get this kind of comment, I'm sure you would have often made the comment when you're looking at a political analysis, and you say, well, OK, statistics can be used for almost anything. And the problem... The problem in a number of cases is that when you have a very low sample, it's very hard to come up with any kind of definitive analysis. And that's effectively what they talked about on the international research, that there was very little actual a body of research there that could lead them. But even with that, they still said that there was a high incidence in this particular scenario. But they said that the analysis of 16 cases showed that 13 out of 16 patients, that 81% required further unplanned surgery. Now, again, you might argue, or you might think, looking at that, that that certainly merits investigation from a legal perspective, obviously, because you're saying, well, okay, there's a flag there. Mm. And and the flag is higher than expected. And the, and the question then, that begs the question, why? And then, of course, when you look at the why, you look at the, the standard mm. of care in medical negligence. And is, d- did they do um, a comparison with best practice globally for, for, for that? No, 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 they just looked at the oh, particular at ones okay. and, a co- right. and, and said that it was an 81%, just looked at the numbers and yes. said 81% of that number had... Uh, further unplanned surgery and then they looked at the infection rate and it was it was up at 73-75% and then they looked at the metalwork complications and that was over 50%. So all the indicators, if you like... Right, the flags, there, as you put as it. The yeah, flags. Yeah. And, and again, yes, does it help 
from an, an analytical point of view, does it help when you're looking through the legal prism? Because the legal prism says that when I look at a fact scenario, I'm looking at a test that's been evolved through case law in the Supreme Court in Ireland, starting with the Dunn case, which says the standard that you're looking at is a comparative standard to people of equal speciality in the particular discipline that you're talking about. Now, you're talking about a highly, highly disciplined area here, so you can imagine the difficulties of establishing whether or not there is or is not a failure, if you like, in the level of care, comparatively speaking, if you know what I mean. The, the acquisition of some of the metal work, for example, did, did that intrigue you that it, 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 they, they weren't sure about the sources of it yeah, and, yeah. you know, yeah. well, and it was endorsed in some way? Or? Well, again, you see, if I'm going to go on the, is it, what's the term you would use? Anecdotal evidence, yeah. which of course isn't evidence at all from a legal point of view because anecdotal evidence is hearsay evidence in my head so whenever I hear anecdotal I always replace it with word hearsay I go back to college 40 years ago when I'm studying my law and it talks to to you when you're a lawyer about hearsay evidence not worth no, well, we all we all do hearsay. Okay. We all right. love hearsay is is a, a very popular piece of evidence because, unfortunately, um, hearsay is he said, she said, or somebody else told you, and you got your information from somebody who you know is a very reliable source, who of course got it from another very reliable source. So the further right. you get from the source, but, but the did less this reliable not come from, from the investigation? But, but this, yeah, but the, I mean, the report that I looked at, the room, the one that I'm looking at, and I read the report itself mm. I didn't see any evidence of what you're talking about right. in the report now and I'm only limiting it to the report uh, when I, I when I when I looked at this um, and all I did was there's a link to the actual report done by them and in the report they find certain, these are the this is what they found this is what they said in the report right. so there's no reference to that even though all, well, over, all, it all over the media there is oh well, there is of course yeah. there is yeah. but but again Fran with all due respect to the <laughs> media hearsay, is that I, I'm simply saying I'm simply <laughs> saying that I can only give you uh, I can only comment on what I've re- for what I've actually read in the report itself. Yes. Now I'm not saying it's not in the report, by the way, because obviously that's equally non-evidential. Because obviously you can't say for for sure that I've read every line of the report. Yes. If you know what I mean, I've I've went through the report. This and John, morning. where 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 Medneg is concerned, yeah. then I mean, all these cases would be individual then, because as you've drummed into us, you can't have a yeah. class action here, for example. No, so no, so. No. And, and I suppose everybody being different, and maybe everybody's outcome Correct. would be different Correct. too, wouldn't and, it? Yeah, and, and, and therein lies the, uh, as you say, I'm, I hope I haven't drummed in this to such an extent, <laughs> but therein lies the problem with any case, if you know what I mean, or any scenario that you're looking at. I mean, it's acknowledged universally that these type of surgeries are highly complex and highly difficult so and that the underlying outcomes can be very very varied uh, so really it's a very very like uh, not unlike other areas of medical negligence or negligence professional negligence it, it, they're hard they are hard 
to prove and to deal with because in in terms of medical negligence, people who come with medical negligence claims often come with a history of medical issues and sometimes it's quite difficult to differentiate between what might have happened anyway, you know, the Mm -hmm. what-if scenario, Mm -hmm. and what happened as a result of an identifiable an identifiable act of negligence, if you know what I mean. And that, you know, and often that's a really difficult one and quite frustrating for the people on the receiving end of it or the people who are the victims of, of these outcomes. It's often extremely difficult. But but therein lies the, mm. the... And the other issue, as I've often said to you as well, is that, and again, with all due respect to professionals, you know, my my own profession included, uh, you know, anybody's profession. It's it's really really difficult to get the objective evidence from other experts who are going to go in and give it a, give evidence in the context of a particular scenario against their colleagues. If you know what I mean. And it's it's probably premature to ask you, but I mean, if you were preparing a case for mm. one of the people affected mm. in mm. The, through through this mm. in in some way. Is it the hospital you'd be looking at? Is it yeah. the practitioner? Is it a mixture Both. of all of that? Is Both. It? Or, or in most of these cases, it's, all of these hospitals are covered by a national scheme now because uh, they've centralised the whole claims scenario in terms of medical negligence over the last number. It's one of the big outcomes over the last number of years because of the level of of medical negligence cases that that, that have arisen. You know, but I mean. It it is it is it is a situation like many that as I said to you, ultimately as a practitioner you'd be saying to yourself, there are a lot of flags here or as I said to uh, people who are who will often slag me for it, I often say there are an awful lot of red lights, you know, that just stop and say, Well wait a minute here, this doesn't look right and funny as a as a as a lawyer down the years, I suppose when you start doing law, a lot of people who start doing law start from a certain kind of a background of looking to do right and do justice and you know the reason you go into law a lot of people would have gone would go into law is because they have an interest in you know the whole legal area and you know those are your instincts often as a lawyer that you look to something like this going back to your baseline question does the report help well of course it does but it certainly shows you the flags in your centre say well wait a second here now there is there, there looks to be a liability here because, after all, the whole legal area, and not get into the political side of it, but the whole legal area of liability is that if is based on what we call the neighbour principle. If I, as your neighbour, does something to you that causes you an injury, the law says that I should compensate you for that. And that's the whole cornerstone stone of the area of tort law, which is what this is all about. Medical negligence is only one aspect of of the neighbour, what is called the neighbour principle, which comes back to that the very first case you'll ever study if you do tort law is the, the snail in the bottle case, oh, yes. which was uh, in Edinburgh, this little girl went in, her granny bought her, and this may not may not be her granny, went in and bought her, uh, you know, a, a soda, and it was in opaque glass, so you couldn't see what was in the soda, and there was a, a, something not very nice in the soda, a snail or something. The child drank it and w- was 
in serious trouble as a result of that and sued the manufacturer who said, oh, no, 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 nothing to do with us because tort law, it's only, you can only sue in contract and contract is where I make a contract with you. So I bought the bottle of you. That's where the contract is. But this expanded out to say that there is a neighbour principle and the principle is you should, it's a little bit like gospel almost, like, you know, love the neighbour. But mm. in this case, you know, not do anything to harm your neighbour. So the whole neighbour principle is the basis for... So likewise in here, if I entrust my child to a professional to do something, you know, to their benefit, mm. and it turns out that I don't, well, there's a liability there, and that's that's the essence of it's it. It's most interesting as always. John, thanks very much indeed. John Lynch there from Lynch Solicitors in Clanwell. That's it for me, Ellie, produced today. Stevenson's on the way with the Time Tunnel, and I will talk to you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Ireland.